to somewhat start over a little bit. Yep. But I think it'll be okay. All right, take two. John, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm great, Brian. How are you? Good to see you. I think we're good now that we're back on YouTube, and I think things are fixed. Sorry to everyone else about those issues, but I think we got them handled. Sweet. So... We talked for a second about Haro. Can we? Can you give me the thirty-second rundown of leaving Haro again? Yeah, I mean, so I was there just over ten years as the brand manager of Haro, and you know, like the industry is so flooded with product right now that I'm a creator and a visionary. You don't really need me for the next few years because. Mm -hmm. Industry is flooded with bikes. Retail is flooded with bikes. And go out and buy a bike. I mean, it's the only way to keep us in jobs because it's, uh, yeah, the pandemic really did screw us. And now we're sitting on all this stock, everyone. So, um, yeah, there was no point in uh, how we're keeping me on as a, as a brand manager, you know. So hopefully they'll hire me back as a consultant to the Lineage line going. I started my own consulting company, Lineage Consulting Group, and uh, that will do bikes, that will do movies, and foster and adoption, the three things that are closest to my heart. Yeah, you said everybody has a lineage, and I was like, yeah, that is so yeah. perfect. It just makes sense. It totally does. It totally does. And uh, yeah, my first, I don't know if it's going to come up later or not, but my first client is actually John De Bruin, who owns Hutch. So already this week started working on the spec for uh, can't call it a lineage because Harold owns lineage as a as the product, mm -hmm. but lineage is a word. So it's like we all have a lineage. So I'm creating this lineage version of a Hutch Trickstar, and that'll be the the first bike that hopefully I've got some good factories and. Um, Hopefully we'll have that bike out here before Christmas because time, the timeline is actually shortened, whereas 12 months ago, it's taken us almost 18 months to get a bike. Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome. It's cool you already, I mean, you said before in our first attempt at this that you just got the, the corporation set up like yesterday or something. Yeah, it was, um, I actually just got my license today um, from the state. My attorney emailed me my, my corporation number. So um, I actually just got that today. And uh, yeah, so let's uh, start off with Hutch and then I'm talking to Torker and Redline as well, possibly doing some projects with them. Uh, Skyway is another one that we're talking to. Got a few brands in the UK I would love to work with, like DP, which I have my bike I'm building right now, which is my first freestyle bike. Uh, Rally, you know, like if there's a I'd love to bring out every childhood dream bike and a modern day bike because they're so colorful and we can make them strong enough that, yeah, they don't break like the old vintage bikes did. Yeah, that's awesome. That's cool that like it, it almost feels like a blessing in disguise to where you you get to like do what you were doing at Haro with other things and, and bring even more like kind of like joy back to people in a even further like spread. Yeah, Brent, that's what kept me going. You know, the emails and the tags I would get, like 
you know, you brought me back into BMX after 30 years. Um, I feel like a teenager again and I'm in my 50s. Um, those kind of messages, like, give me goosebumps because mm. um, I just, I, I love what I feel when I'm riding my Harrow Sport because uh, it looks like my 1988 Harrow Sport. And for those guys that could either not afford a Harrow Freestyler because I couldn't, 82 to 87, I couldn't afford a Harrow. Um, so there's so many people that couldn't afford a Harrow or uh, RL22 or a Torque Hutch uh, Trickstar. I mean, now they can, they can because they're grown-ass men and they can get bring back a little bit of their childhood dreams again. Yeah. And I, feel- and I don't know. I'm sure you've noticed, I've noticed for sure that there are what seems like sometimes more older guys getting back into BMX than yep. sometimes that there are kids getting into it for the first time. Yeah, Brent, I mean, since, you know, California closed down March 16th, my birthday, uh, 2020, and, and I know 48 people that have committed suicide since then. Wow. Through motocross, skate, friends I've known for many years, 48 people have committed suicide. And you get on one of these bikes and it just brings you to living in the moment again. And, and that's, that's what you get from BMX. It doesn't have to be a lineage bike or anything. It can be any kind of bike, but um, I love being a little part of the BMX community that I can give these, these bikes and uh, the opportunity to so many consumers that want to relive their childhood. And some will probably just hang it up in the house because it is a, these bikes are masterpieces. I mean, the work we put into them, like from the hub, the crank, I mean, the, the fusion crank, for instance, that we created. I used my own original fusion crank from 1989. So we could actually take a 3D mold of the crank arm and recreate it into modern day. Back in the day, it was a 20 mil axle, made it 22. And then it was just alloy uh, right the way through the arm, whereas now you've got the chrome molly insert. Doing these little touches, but keeping the aesthetic of the original shape is the key. And that's something I'm proud of um, doing that with products. I mean, same with the knee saver bar. The original was 28 inch wide, 825 in height, brought it as an 8.5, but still kept the bends and the 25.4 to 22.2 and tapered tubing. So it looked visually exactly the same as you remember. Yeah. I mean, the only person that would argue with me is probably DMC because he'd always like, that's off, that color's come off. I remember <laughs> in 86 and it was this color. And I'm like, dude, I have an original frame that was in a box for 30 plus years. I'm color matching into that. The only difference is back in the 80s, there was lead in the paint and now it's illegal to put mm. lead in the paint. Well, to bring it into America, definitely. I'm sure the UK and Australia are the same. So that's the only time you'll see a difference in a paint is because there's no lead in it. So how can you replicate the exact color? But yeah, DMC picked it. He's like, no, it's the wrong color. <laughs> Sorry, DMC, DMC, we can't, uh, we can't lead poison the the people by getting the exact <laughs> color. Exactly. I just call it a Kawasaki green, 1986 Harrow Master. It's the closest green you could get to the actual Harrow Master. So yeah. yeah. I love seeing people riding those bikes and it's clear that you think about the the implications of making those bikes and how many people come back into BMX from doing that 
I, I'm sure yeah. it's cool to think about that. Oh, it is. It's such, as I said, it's a blessing that I had this opportunity to do it um, when I had my own company, Pilgrim. Um, I actually made my chrome bike uh, with gold rims and gold stem and made it look like an actual old chrome torker from like 79. But it was a brand new modern day bike. So I was even doing the lineage look before I started at Harrow. Mm. Nice. So before you even started the lineage project, did you think about the fact that it could bring people back in or was it more of like a different kind of? Um, I knew there was eager riders out there that wanted something different. Sadly, BMX, especially in sort of the 2010, kind of 2012 group, everything was black, mm. you know. It, everything was, and I hate saying it, it almost looked boring. Um, it's, you've got your double triangle on a frame and it's the strongest construction, totally get that. But in the 80s, you could tell a GT performer from a distance. You could tell a Harrow Master from a distance. You could tell a CW, a Hutch, um, Torker, the list goes on. You could tell the difference of the bikes. Today, you can almost strip a a modern day frame and wouldn't actually know what brand it was unless it's got an investment cash dropout with the brand logo mm-hmm. and what i love about recreating the lineage I didn't, I didn't invent it i'm just recreating what was from the past but you can they stand out and young kids um michael from columbia actually the first time i met him he was like and this was before he was riding for harrow um, he's like, can I ride your bike? This is awesome. And he's only, Michael's like 20, 21 or something. So it was cool that even younger guys love what this is. And it's, it's as strong as any bike you can get today, if not even stronger. Yeah. Well, okay. So one thing I was going to ask you is if you remember a time when you and I actually talked and, and yeah. met, yeah. I was curious because it was so long ago that I'm like, there's no way he's going to remember this but it was because of the lineage. Do you yeah. remember where and when that was? Oh my God. It's okay. I'm not offended if you don't remember it. No, I'm excited I mean, to talk honestly, about it. Brent, I, I blame it on the countless concussions. Yeah. My memory, I mean, I get, I get people from school hitting me up and I'm like, I don't remember you. Yeah. And then you have to remind me and I'm like, Oh, it's yeah. So please Brent, Sorry, I'm I'm totally okay with it because this was in 2016. Like this right. is this is a long time ago, and you've been in BMX for a long time, so I'm I'm understanding of it. But the whole reason that I even said anything in the first place is because it was an inner bike, 2016, mm-hmm. and that was when those bikes were there. I'm not yep. sure how many of them had been done at that time. Was that one of the that first? Was the, that was a DMC Master, so that was 450. I remember that that because Stephen Murray was there as well. Was that the first one or how many no, the lineage no, was it, that? So that was probably, I mean, it was realistically, it was probably the, the most high end lineage we'd done. Before that, we did the FST, the Brian Belyther model, mm. but I did that as a single top tube. Um, I was still trying to keep a bit of heritage there, but keep a modern day frame. A lot of people that I was working with were like, dude, you can't, Harold tried this in 2005, 2006, putting the sport platform on there, doing the twin top tubes, and it didn't work. Like, they sold out, 
like no one was riding them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why um, 2014 was more of a vintage bike. That was the Dominguez. 2015 was uh, the beginning of a lineage kind of thing, even though we had all these lineage parts since 2012, um, since that started. But uh, yeah, the FST was probably the first lineage named complete. And then the DMC was the proper one that I really wanted to do with all the high-end parts, investment cast dropouts, um, internal internal cable routing on the lineage fork. Um, I tell you, like everyone at home was like, we're scared. This is $1,299. Like, mm-hmm. We haven't sold bikes this price since Dave Mira Pro Models. Yeah. And so, but I said, so my argument then was, okay, well, no one's convinced on this. I said, let, let me build a sample. Let me sell it to the consumer. And then we take the order, well, the shops take the orders, the orders put their, the, the shops put, place their orders, and then we order what they want. Keep it limited. I don't want to flood the market. I love that we run out of a certain color. And so that's what we did. We went, okay, well, one sample, cost you a couple of bucks, and then uh, go out, take it to Interbike, do the live video feeds. And I learned this from Steve Jobs, like when there's an emotional connection, there's no price tag. Mm-hmm. And I also learned that when Steve Jobs spoke, people listened. Yeah. Okay, I'm getting this new iPhone. I don't need it, but I'm going to buy it. And so that's when I, I realized that if we can do these videos and present them online direct to the consumer, the consumers asking the retailer, the retailers asking the wholesaler, we make them. Yeah. So I was selling direct and the consumer felt that they were part of the project and I kept them updated and that's what the consumer loves they feel like they're a part of the bike part of the process right like, oh, I agree. 30 days away oh that's the color that's what it looks like in the factory when it's raw and and I kept updating online and the consumers you know they, as long as you communicate even if there's a delay and there has been many delays um, as long as you communicate communication is key and the consumers never never cancelled the bikes and they were all happy and a lot of them said oh i missed out again i wish i bought this and that and, well it's a limited run you can't do a limited edition and do a second run right yeah <laughs> so so at interbike i was looking at the bike and i remember asking I, it had to have been you that was standing there about it is, the, i'm remembering it now i'm I, remembering it i feel like i was asking something about like the strength of it like is that still strong as having the top tubes like that not having the middle one or something along those lines and then like neither of us knew who each other were at all like i hadn't heard anything about you or your history or anything and and what i appreciate so much thinking back on that time is that we stood there and talked for probably like an hour and and you were telling you were all excited and telling me how Albies had bought how many of these bikes already and all these other bike shops were like into it and and just super excited about the thing and I was like man then looking back and learning more about you I'm like damn this guy took time out of his day to talk to some random dude and just get excited about BMX and I'm like wow I just appreciate that no I appreciate Brian and thanks for the the recall of the memory cuz I remember it now, totally remember it now. Because um, we were in that sort of booth and then we had the square black case in the middle mm-hmm. and parts and accessories and everything in there and stuff. So, yeah, no, I totally remember it now in Vegas. 
Yeah, and just talking about like lip tricks, and I'm like, oh yeah, you should check out Lip Lords and and all that stuff. And you were the one that introduced me to Lip Lords, so that was it. I didn't know about them before. Yeah, well, that was yeah. yeah. And then just seeing where it's gone since then, and then thinking back, this that that conversation at Interbike when I'm thinking about, all right, who can I have a conversation with? Your name popped into my head. I'm like this guy and i look it up and i'm like oh he's done like eight hours with the big bmx the big bike guys this is gonna be <laughs> we're gonna have to figure out some good questions here to not overlap too much because those guys did a great job yeah yeah that was every every time i'm on with them it's at night and i'm i'm always having a whiskey or something near me so i'm sticking to my water today <laughs> the water in the guinness cup water in the guinness cup I know, you like to do that? Oh my god, is that sacrilege? I also heard that uh, the last project that you worked on with Haro is coming out this year, now that it's 2023? Yeah, so there was um, there's four more bikes to come out that I worked on. The Bob Haro Freestyler, which looks like his original Freestyler back in the day, and it comes with the Oakley B1Bs. So Brian Takumi, thank you so much, because uh, he only lets Todd Lyons, SE, um, put those Oakley grips on on his bike. So but he loves Harold, and he was like, look, look we'll do this. Um, all Oakley wants is um, is a sample bike to hang in their museum. Oh, yeah. Cool. So we managed to get, again, the, the Bob Harrell bike. Um, we managed to get the... Oakley B1Bs, um, they were they printed the opposite color. They had the yellow base with red on top, but Bob originally rode red base with yellow. So it was like, we had to get them switched out pretty fast. So um, Colby over at ODI managed to reprint and get them done. And then Kevin Connors, uh, Arrow, shipped them over to Taiwan. And I believe they're getting switched out and the correct color will be on the bike so what does it take oh, 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 i'm not there so i don't know yeah like what does it take to to really make something like that like a very fine detail of something i mean you said that he only lets todd lyons use those grips like how, how does that process even work yeah i mean like you can go on ebay right now and the grips that are going on the bob harrow bike the replica grips $350 right you know so as I said the only reason Brian agreed to allow Harold to use it is because he's a Harold fan mm-hmm. and to show you how much you know Brian Takumi is such a fan and he pays retail for all his bike parts oh wow he, buy, he buys a lot of his stuff from Pat at Flatland Fuel Brian told me because um, he did us the favor of doing these grips and I was like look thanks bro is there anything you need from Harrow and he goes nah man I buy retail and I'm like wow <laughs> but that's keeping retail in business and I really appreciate that because um, yeah so it's because he loves Harrow and he managed to get that across the line with the higher ups uh, at, at Oakley that's awesome that that even could be possible and then there's other things like how you guys have completely recreated a part to be similar to a part that was back in the the day 
to yeah. make to make these bikes look like as close as possible i mean i think i remember the you said something about the cranks already but also the pedals yep the pedals were almost a bit of a throwback to the shimano dx pedal um the the sprocket so the 2016 was more like a unidirectional sprocket um 2017 was starting to get into um peregrine in 1987 were on a lot of the Harrow bikes so we couldn't use peregrine so i thought okay well let's change it a little bit so i had the whole look and feel of peregrine on the sprocket but it was all harrow mm-hmm. and on the rims it says so peregrine used to put on their super pro rims only used with peregrine hp tires you know like so the little jokes like that and i was putting in the so it's a water transfer decal yeah just a normal decal so it doesn't scratch off so on the rim it would say only use with harrow hpf 100 psi tires you know and people would be like do we is this rim only for harrow tires and we all, <laughs> but come on dude it's a 20 inch wheel you can ride anything it's but an easter egg i love i love doing that and then the, the peregrine hubs were just so iconic back then so pete demos the art director at harrow he redesigned it to look like the Peregrine Hub, but it was a lineage, lineage seat clamp that was like a Peregrine, and even has the little notches. And I guarantee most people that got a 2017, 2018 uh, Master or Sport don't understand or realize that that seat clamp has actually got the machining underneath it that Peregrine originally had. So, I mean, in Asia, in Taiwan, where we make all these bikes, I'm known as Mr. One Millimeter. Yeah. Because I'm so, I need everything so perfect and precise. And if it's not 99.99, I'm rejecting it. And I've rejected a lot of stuff. And yeah, not being, not being popular on the production lines. Yeah, I heard. One thing, you're stopping the entire production. And honestly, they want to put down e-bikes whilst we're stopping. It's like, well, you can't just take all the harrows off and do another company. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I wasn't popular for a while in Taiwan, but uh, th- I've reached out to them this week and everyone wants to work with me again. So that's awesome. That is awesome. I heard that you became Mr. Half a Millimeter. I did. You, <laughs> you did in the podcast. Oh. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, I did. They got that bad. They were like, Half a Millimeter. I'm like, I'm not being racist in any way. It's just how... <laughs> yeah at the time you speak to me yeah yeah that's i mean but the, when you want to make something right that's what you have to do you have to and they will follow the exact direction i mean i remember bob and a few other brands went to taiwan in the mid 80s and taught them how america builds bikes i mean that's what happened so haro made some the 1982-1983 freestylers here, half the year with the Master of Sport in America, and then everything else was made in Taiwan. So from pretty much 1984 to today, everything's been Taiwanese, or obviously when it's under $500, you have to go to China. Mm-hmm. It's $500 retail bike. Lineage, we don't have one item made in China on the bike. Even like the K- KMC chains and everything, they're made in Taiwan and go to all the factories. I mean, people don't realize, like, when you break a bike 
there was about 68 factories you have to deal with to build one bicycle. Right. You know, it's not like, oh, here you go, here's a bike, make it for me. You have to contact the hub maker, the spoke maker, the rim maker, the inner tube, the tire, the crank, the pedal, the bottom bracket. Like, there is so much. Everything is a different factory. Right. And then when you break that down even further, somebody has to design each one of those. And, like, it's it's not as simple as, like, here's a picture, make this bike. Like you, there's, exactly. there's a lot that goes into it. Oh, man. I mean, I'll tell you... Uh, this is a heartbreaking story. <laughs> when I was creating the Harrow HPF tire, so it was one of the popular tires in the 80s, recreated it for today. I took my original tires from 1988 over there and left them with them so um, Kenda could recreate the exact mold but make it as a 2.2 tire instead of the 2.0s back then. Mm -hmm. They pumped the tire up to 100 PSI and it explodes. My tires, $800, explode. And I'm yep. like, he goes, don't worry, we get measurements. And I'm like, great. You... <laughs> we'll make so, you new ones. <laughs> I know. I mean, a lot, a lot of people don't realize, like even they were going through my fusion crank, the crank arm, they actually corroded the crank arm, creating the mold. Yeah. Like they gave me my crank arm back and it was all corroded. The B1B number plates of... Harrow and Oakley had that B1B thing, but there was a B1B number plate that we did for Harrow. And when they did the scan of it, the plate is painted around the edge. It was an original number plate, and they accidentally took some of the paint off, and it was missing. That's, yeah. So, yeah, it's, you, I, I put my heart and soul into these projects, and I use my own personal collection of 128 arrows, which was sick. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I used all those items so that externally it looked 100% exact what it was back in the day. Internally, I would change it so that no one could try and sell a replica part for um, an original. That's interesting. That's, I didn't know that side of it. Oh, I mean, even if you look at, if you're sitting on a Harrow Master and you look down, and especially like um, between the sort of the 87 right up to the Bashgard bikes, uh, it went from straight twin top tube to a swivel. The swivel is, I would say, 99.9% .9 exact to the original swivel. Mm -hmm. The only difference is the original bike was 19.5, now it's 20.5. So it was such a short frame, so it does look a little bit longer. But that bend and that swivel, and same with the sport, getting it around. Originally, they, they gave us it like this in Taiwan. I'm like, no, it has to curve and show them all the dimensions. And it's painful, but I want, again, that person that may have had a Harrow back in the day or wish they had a Harrow in the 80s, they get on that bike and it, you're emotionally connected to the bike because it reminds you of riding that master sport back in the day. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's... I don't know. I, think I never, never cut corners, bro. I never cut corners. I'd rather spend more to bring out the best. And some people complain that, like, the Bob Harrow bike is $2,000. But there's not anything cheap on that bike. Everything costs. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm well, still... I mean, people are going to complain if you do it perfect, and people are going to complain if you don't do it perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Money talks. They're sold out. They're completely sold out. And... I collect every single lineage 
bike that we brought out over the past, what we've gone on 10 years now. Um, and so I collect all number one serial numbers. Mm-hmm. And the factory, because I was still at Harrow, they have my name in the box. And I reached out to Kevin Connors the other day and I said, dude, please make sure that number one is still coming here. And he goes, I'll, I'll make sure to come. Because I'm still going to buy it. Yeah. You know, I bought every single bike when I worked at Harrow. I didn't get a free bike. I bought every single bike. And even my samples. And then at the end, once I test the samples, I would sell them to a friend, yeah. a local friend here in San Diego. And so many people love the sample because it's the only one. Yeah, right. Yeah, you oh. really get exclusive if you're talking about a sample. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple actually ended up in the UK. Uh, my 2019 Bashgard bike and the 2021 Airmaster in the UK because I was using them whilst I was riding and recreating tricks. 30 years later and going back and recreating them in the same spots. That's so, amazing. Using, <laughs> using the lineage bike to go back oh to the original God. spot. And there was one wall ride that, you know Grant Smith from BSC? Yeah. So I've been friends with Grant since 89, 88, 89. And uh, so Grant was like, all right, we'll drive up from Glasgow and bring you a kicker because I wanted to do this wall ride I did back in 91. Back in 91, I was like seven feet off the ground on this wall, right? On his kicker, I'm getting like three feet off the ground. And I'm like, come on. And everyone's like, you can do it, you can do it. And I'm like, jeez. And it was private property. So we, I had to sign a disclaimer. I had to, um, uh, what's it called when you have, it's not, ins- not the insurance. There was something else I had to basically say, what was the pros and cons? What, what could happen? What didn't happen? And so I'm just saying all these waivers for three months leading up just to ride this wall. And then I realized when they built this complex where this wall is, it's it's uphill. So I had to ride uphill to the wall. So yeah, I was getting three feet, not six, seven feet, like it was back in the day. <laughs> yeah. I was wearing my Vision streetwear jacket from 88. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna ask, have you like taken photos or have you matched a photo from back then to today and tried to like recreate even that part of it? Oh yeah, I've done that so many times. Uh, with my sport, with my 2019 Master, went back to a few of the spots that I did with the Bash Guard. And then the, the Air Master, I was riding in night two, 1991 i went back last year 2022 so it was 31 years after the fact and again using wearing my vision streetwear jacket mm-hmm. the lineage airmaster looked exactly the same as the airmaster i rode back in 91 and 91 i got so high I, when i came off i freaking nose case and snapped my head tube off Ooh. so the, and i've still got that bike that's hanging up in on my wall my timeline of all my bikes yeah, so you mentioned 128 bikes. I feel like if you want to hear about the 128 bikes, watch the the big bike, big BMX. What's it called? Big bike BMX. Yeah. Big bike BMX podcast. He's got two parts on there, then one on the movie. But I'm curious because you said in there that you uh, sold your collection, except for a few of your yep. favorites. Yeah, I'm curious how much the collection has grown again since you sold off those other ones. I know it's like, um, so I had 128 bikes. I sold about 100 and bought this house. Yeah. Uh, so, as Bob said back in the day, BMX days. So, <laughs> um, 
I, I wanted to keep the collection. I wanted Harold to have the collection because it was the entire timeline mm-hmm. of Harold's history. It was every pro model, right up to the Nyquist and the Mirrors and everything. It was every pro model of Harold's existence. Um, but yeah, uh, sadly, it was it was three hundred and fifty grand. I mean, it was a lot of bikes, so um, I had to split them up and sell them all, and went all over the world to good people, and um, managed to buy this house. So the ones I kept were the ones I personally rode. Mm-hmm. The eighty-eight Sport. I had. I actually had a NOS eighty-eight Sport that I had collected over the years, but I still had my original one that's been re-welded and repainted and everything. My eighty-nine Chrome Master, my eighty-nine Black Master, and my ninety-one Air Master. I kept them, and I had a Dino Slammer. I kept that. I've got my Homeless Mac, and I've just finished my two standards. Um, 1995 STA and 1996 uh, Lengthy. So my trans green STA and my trans blue Lengthy. And then right now, I've almost finished my first freestyle bike. It's right behind me. Yeah, we need I, to see that. I just, I'm waiting for the grips to turn up. So, Tell me about is, this bike. This is a DP Firebird. So this is made in England. And as you can see, it's got the twin top tube. So it's almost a bit like a Harrow Master. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's got um, the tough neck USA made stem, tough neck sprocket. Um, so this I actually rode when I was a kid, and it was the first freestyle bike. So that was nineteen. I'll come back in. That was nineteen eighty six. I rode that bike, and I totally forgot. Even some of my friends were like, "I don't remember you riding a DP." I forgot I had a DP um, until you actually watch the credits in the mo- my movie, The Ride, mm-hmm. and there's clips of me from 1986 trying to do Flatland on that Yeah, and out in the street. Yep, so that's why I recreated that bike. I was like, shit, that was my first freestyle bike. It wasn't a Harrow Sport. It was a DP Firebird, and I bought that. My friend Ben Joe drove like 100 miles to go and pick the bike up in England. So this was only last year. He picked it up, drove 100 miles, brought it back to his house and then brought it to America with him for me. Wow. I mean, that's... And, and there was one person really wanting that bike and that was Jamie Bestwick. So, sorry, Jamie. <laughs> There's probably another one available somewhere. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, <laughs> he can challenge you to a, a five tap off. and. Uh... Oh, yeah, man. Jamie is just still killing it. And not many people knew, but I mean, yeah, he was a mini ramp rider. He could do everything. Oh, he could yeah. Ride there. He could do street. Like, Jamie is, yeah, I mean, Flatland as well. He, he's got everything under his belt. Everyone in modern days since the 2000s know him as a vert rider, but Jamie rides everything. Right. I mean, you don't get that good at vert and all of the different tricks that he's doing on vert by only being a vert rider. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so it was pretty cool. Um, so I'm stoked to get that one. I'm just waiting for the Amy grips to turn up. Yeah, how long do you think it'll? I mean, I, I guess you can't really say how long it'll take because you don't know. It was crazy. So I bought them. There was a shop in Philadelphia had them. So I bought them from there on the 18th of December. They meant to arrive on the 30th of December. So 12 days from Philly. It's now. Yeah, they emailed me back and says, "Oh, we found it." It's in transit, and you'll have it Tuesday. So I'll be able to finish the bike off on Tuesday. Oh, like completely done? Yeah, that's it. Completely done. I just need the the grips. 
Oh, um, man. Tom, Tom Phipps, who's a historian and builds a lot of stuff, he gave me the, the Panarese of Tires. So he actually went out himself and remade the Panarese of Tires. What do you think people are going to do as time goes and, like, the the supply of what's actually out there just is it going to be just like tr people who collect stuff letting out of their collection like well, i don't know what'll happen yeah i mean look i've i can only speak for myself i'm forecasting that realistically i mean uh, so um uh, yeah i'm gonna be 51 in two months jesus um <laughs> a lot of these guys that are 50 getting into the 55 once you reach 60 it's like definitely 20 inch it's getting hard mm. at 55, 60 um, to ride a 20 inch. So a lot of guys are getting on the big bikes. But um, I see lineage creations of the the bikes that you always wanted. If it's a Hutch, if it's a Redline, Skyway. Um, I'm giving it a five year timeline. And then maybe, I mean, fixie gear bikes were massive. Then Todd brought out the big bikes. Is something next in five years? I'd love to create something. <laughs> yeah. Because I know everything has a timeline, everything, you know, uh, and so I'm being realistic with the brands I'm talking to. It's like, look, you got to get in now because there isn't any lineage products out there. Once the Bob Harrow comes out, then in July, there's a Groundmaster coming out um, and a 20 inch and a specific Flatland Groundmaster and a 26 inch. So this is going to be interesting because I was working with R.L. Osborne on this. Yeah. And we do an R.L. Osborne model, but then he chose to go another path. And so we kept it as a groundmaster. And because he felt I was wrong with my geometry. Wow. And at Woodward last year, he came up and he came up to me and he said, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> but so the bike will be out in July, a 26 inch groundmaster. That's going to be amazing. So... And then uh, the Sport comes out in a 20-inch and a, a 26-inch. And that Sport's got some nice neon uh, graphics and neon parts on it, which is going to be pretty sweet. And I love doing a painted bike because you can do the water transfer decal. Mm -hmm. And I see guys still riding. Like the DMC was a Mylar decal, which is a normal sticker. And then 2017 managed to do the water transfer. Again, most people were against me saying, people want to take their stickers off. And I'm like, but these guys that are mostly connected to this bike, they want it to look brand new mm. every day. And I've got friends that are still riding 2017 Masters and sports, and especially the Master, they're doing Flatland and they're scuffing and you just clean over the, the clear coat and the decals are perfect. So the bike will look as new as you want it to, as long as you look after it. Huh, that's pretty cool. I'm the kind of person that I like I clean my bike when it's new and try and keep it looking as new as possible as long as possible. So that, that's pretty cool that you, to hear that that's possible. Oh, yeah. I mean, mountain bike and road have been using it for years. So the water transfer decal, and it's, the water transfer decal, I don't know if you ever played around with um, model airplanes as a kid and you would get the sticker kit. So this is more like the 80s and the 70s, but like you would get this plastic plane and you'd have to glue it and build it all or you would get a warship but then you'd get these little decals and you'd have to dip them in water to then place them on they were that thin and that's the same as the the water transfer decals on the bikes they're so thin that once you put the clear coat on it you can't even feel the sticker yeah 
which is, I love it. Uh, and again, a lot of people didn't want it, but then when they buy the bike and realize that it doesn't scuff off, it doesn't peel. And when you've got a tapered shoe, so when you've got this tapered leg or whatever, to keep a sticker from having a little ripple on it, mm -hmm. it's, it's impossible. But if you do it as a water transfer decal and put the clear on it, you've already stretched it, it's held in place, there's no movement, so there's no bubbles. So that's why I like doing water transfer. Yeah, that makes sense. It just sounds like it's better quality. Yeah, definitely. And if you're proud of the brand, you want to show it off. Yeah. Uh, is there a bike that, like, have you already done the best of the best in your mind for, like, which one you would pick to do? Or is that yet to come? Um, if Harold decided to bring me back as a consultant, um, a lot of people have asked for the, the Pink Master and Pink Sport that came out in 1985. And, you know, I'm really good friends with Bob Harrow, and Bob told me recently he never made that bike. Hmm. He doesn't know who did the... It might have been Jim Ford, but Bob said he never made a Pink Master or a Pink Sport. Huh. So I would still like to bring it out because someone did it and they were out there and it was almost like a pink pastel color yeah. kind of thing. Um, so I'd like to do that. Um, the black, blue, the black, gray, chrome DMC lineage bike. The black and gray came out as a Legends, which is the big bike. So that's out now. But I always wanted to do that as a, a 20 inch lineage rideable bike. Um, and again, there was so there's there's a lot. There's still about another five years of product that that could come out with Harrow as well, for sure. Yeah. So, was that a you have done your dream bike with that, or you haven't yet? My 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 dream bike would definitely have to be the Bob Harrow, the Bob Harrow Freestyler, recreating that, um, making it as a modern day rideable bike. Um, I've seen a few comments, people are questioning why I put a 15 um, offset on the fork instead of the 33 offset as a lineage cast dropout. And, you know, Brad, when you're riding mini ramp or whatever, mm -hmm. having that 15 offset, I mean, for Canadians, toothpicks, yeah. there's so much more you can do. Hang fives are so much easier with that shallow offset. So yeah. um, that's why I wanted to do um, it's based off Matthias Dambois fork, the La Bastille, um, but made it as a Grandmaster fork with 990 mounts internal internal cable routing. So um, 165 cranks, again, I've seen people go, why is it 165, not 175? I'm like, well, 165, your feet are here. They're closer. So if you're really riding, because these aren't built to do 20 miles. These mm -hmm. are built right on the ramp and, and do flatland or whatever you want to do. So a 165 crank makes it so much easier if you're doing a tail whip or if you're doing a whiplash to actually grab back onto the pedals. Because realistically, you're 20 mil closer than you are on a 175. Yeah. I love the, the, the fine line between function and adhering to what it was. Because yeah. there's such a fine line. And then either way you go on that line, people are like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to people getting the, because the crank is 165, but it, it says lineage, but it's got the three red line stripes on it. So it looks like the red line 401 crank. Mm. 
but uh, it's a lineage crank. So um, yeah, yeah, just those little details I love putting in there. Um, but again, like you've got the lineage stem and you've got a Groundmaster. So you've got the 1982 Harrow Freestyler and then you've got the 1991 Harrow Master. Well, 1991 had a fusion stem, but back in 1982, it was only a frame set and a lot of them came with the vector bar. So it was that one piece bar stem combo. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to put it on this bike because it brings your top tube really is you've shrunk 40 mil. Right. You're bringing it so close that you would feel like you were on a 16 inch frame instead of a 48 stem or a 52 stem. But um, yeah, so those little things like you can still have that emotional connection without putting a vector, modern day vector bar on it. And that's why we still put the, the lineage um, stem, but making sure that it says Harrow and not Fusion, because you're trying to replicate something 40 years ago and Fusion never existed. Yeah. Okay. So that was painful as well, telling the factory the Bob Harrow has this Harrow stem, the Groundmaster has the Fusion stem, and it's all in the spec, but there's, a, there's still crossover. And the past couple of years, we haven't been able to um qc or bikes in asia i mean i'm going to taiwan in march for the first time in three years so all these bikes are getting sent and we haven't seen the the quality until it arrives we hope they're okay yeah that's a so scary thought <laughs> it's so scary it's so scary because I, I loved being there for every production loved it and loved being a pain in the ass because at the end of the day consumer <laughs> gets what he wanted and he gets what I envisioned. So that that's the most important thing. I just want to please the consumer that uh, they want to come back for more. I mean, there's a guy, Joe, Joe Vasquez. And ben, so Joe Vasquez lives in um, San Jose. And Ben Joe, who picked up this DP, lives over in England. Both of them have between 20 and 24 lineage bikes. Wow. I'm like, thanks, you get me in a job. <laughs> no doubt. That's like a, that's a huge down payment on a house. <laughs> I know, I'm like, what the? So, um, yeah, so it's, it's cool. It's cool when you get that and, uh, and that, that people can actually feel a connection to their bicycle, um, which is awesome in, in their late 40s, early 50s. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of those bikes around, people riding them. And it's always cool because you can tell that they have that emotional connection. I mean, that's most of the time why people get them. Uh, there was a dude in the chat, Stony, old fat guy BMX. He said, I have six of John's bikes and love everything <laughs> about all of them. <laughs> Thanks, Stony. He's a great guy. But, yeah, he is. Yeah, he's a good guy. So, it's, But again, I, I do I thank everyone that has ever bought one of these bikes because it did. I mean, 10% 10, 10 of my job was lineage. 90% was everything else when I was a brand manager, you know? You had to look after sort of the TM, the team, the product managers, then you're working with the art department, you have to do the ads, the ad campaign, the budgets, everything else. But that 10% of my job was 100% of my devotion, mm. passion, love. Um, like a $249 Harrow Shredder how am I going to put the same passion into that as I do into a lineage bike? And that's why they were so expensive because everything, that seat clamp is probably, you know, 30 bucks. Right. It's like, there's nothing cheap on there. So lineage kept me at Harrow. 
And with that lineage, um, it would have been difficult for me to stay there because I can't just do something. And I don't like that word just. Like, mm. I'll just do it. Well, you're going to do it half-assed. So it's like drop just and drop if, it's when. So there's a way of our vocabulary on creating the possibilities. So when am I doing that? And I got let go by Harrow and I'm like, shit, on the vodka, drinking like crazy. And I'm like, it's just the end of a chapter. I mean, I've went through worse, so <laughs> I'll get through this. Well, I think it might almost be even like could be an exciting thing in that you take, okay, I have 10% of my time devoted to these lineage projects. Okay, now you're on your own with your corporation. You can put 90% of your time into the ones that go for the companies that you're consulting with. And that's like, that's kind of feel like it'd be exciting in itself. Oh, man, I'm so excited. Like I wanted to start all this last year but again with tax and everything else mm -hmm. uh, i didn't want to start anything until the 2nd of january so that's when i filed everything on the 18th of december for my business but my attorney just told me this morning in an email that it's been approved and i've got my business number and i can go ahead so i have to go back to the bank and set up my my bank account for the business and uh looking forward to as i said just putting smiles on middle-aged men's faces and women, <laughs> women out there, you know, like just seeing that smile and someone just come up and saying thank you, that, that's, that's all I could ever expect and ask for. Absolutely. So one thing I forgot to ask you when you're talking about that bike that's behind you. So is that the, that model, was that your first like real BMX bike? Yeah, that was my first freestyle bike. Um, I'm going to see if I can find. I did a screen grab actually from the film, and I'm trying to see if I if just I... saw it. I actually watched yeah. it today. What the the ride? Yeah, when you oh you did when you asked me if I had seen it, I was about forty minutes in. <laughs> oh shit! But uh, I remember that specifically because you were trying something on the front end of the bike. Yeah, I'm trying. Oh, I... there it is. Look, there's me walking out with the bike. Yep. That's a DP Firebird. And that boombox there is actually hanging up in my kitchen. Is that the one from the... That's my original, yeah. Like from the podcast that you talked about in there? Yes. Wow, that's incredible. See, that's why I'm never getting rid of anything. Because and I want to be able like, to... People say, you know, like, how do you have this shit? I mean, I have... Upstairs, I have a, a little E.T. doll from mm. when I went and saw E.T. that got me into BMX. My, my foster father bought me that E.T. doll in 1982. And to know that it's still there 40 years later, I'm just like, it's <laughs> pretty awesome. emotional. Like, I, I love these little things. And um, people are always like, you know, how, how did you save all this stuff? Or where did all these photos and videos and everything come from? It's like, I've always archived everything because, you know, we'll probably get into it later, but my biological family, before I was adopted, I had nothing. There was one photo of me in existence. Mm. So from zero to seven, I had nothing. Yeah. So now that I have something, I've got my Donkey Kong from 1982. Yeah. In the box still, like it was a Christmas gift. And so I can still take it out, I put batteries in it, it still works. 40 year old Donkey Kong. 
Yeah, I mean, hey, I still have all mine, too. (laughs) Like, I have all of that stuff as well, just because it's like, I don't ever want to have to remember something just from the memory of it. That's why I make videos. That's why I'm filming every session I have, because I want to be able to personally look back on that day if I ever want to, or and I want the people who were there to be able to look back on it. Totally, totally, and and I've actually put in my will like certain bikes are getting donated to either my school that I went to as a teenager, or uh, there was a, an old abandoned factory we used to ride and we built ramps inside. It was three mm-hmm. stories of the factory in Dundee, and um, that's now Dundee Contemporary Arts Centre, and it's got two cinemas in there. It's got a restaurant, a bar, art school. I mean, this whole hmm. crazy. Donating my Dino Slammer from '92 um, to to them, and like I would love this stuff to go somewhere. I don't want to just sell it. Yeah, you know, so I'd rather give um, than than get some money for it because I'd like it to be kept uh, somewhere that it, it is memorable, and it was definitely memorable there because I rode it there in right. that old warehouse. That's that's amazing. That. <laughs> It's, it's cool to be intentional like that. Uh, I did want to bring up because in the movie it shows you seeing ET, and it seems like it's a pretty significant moment. Like from how it's showing it, obviously it's intentional because it's a movie, and yeah. and then it shows you seeing BMX as you're going to school. So yeah. I I feel like was the ET part shown while your character was in the locked up yeah so is that how that happened or how did that happen in real life in real life i got out of juvie when i was 10 years old yeah and then i went to stay with my foster parents and my parents took me to see et okay in the movie they wanted to sort of speed up that era between seven year old and 16 right so that pretty much in eight months i became ryan williams you know (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) It was pretty crazy, but it took eight years to get semi-decent. Um, but ET was the turning point, and I didn't realize until years later that Bob Harrell was the one with the, the balaclava on. Really? That's Bob Harrell that pulls the ball of balaclava on. And Robert, I always get his name wrong, Robert Cardova, Cardoza, Cardoza. He's the one with the, the red hat and the headphones. He was in here. <laughs> he was watching. Robert was here. He said, uh, "He said, please." It was at the beginning, but I it, we were talking about something, so I didn't want to interrupt. He said, "Please tell John, Robert, and Jane say hi. We're always here for you." Oh Jesus! Well, there's the goosebumps again. I mean, so Robert, and did you hear Robert's bike sold for? I, I think it might have even been on our BMX the other day, but. It was something like seventy thousand dollars. Holy cow! Yeah, he's still in here. Uh, he said All thanks, right, buddy. Robert so, there. so Robert was in the. What were you saying about him? So Robert was the first stuntman in ET. He's the one with the red hat and the the headphones, I believe. Robert, hopefully. He can I, correct I us if not. Yeah, um, and then Robert called Bob, and then brought Bob in as well. So there was four of them. So, but. Um, I remember the whole story because I, I listened to one of Robert's podcasts and, and I think either he was working for the bike shop or it, his family was part of the bike shop and 
Spielberg needed some stunt doubles, and Robert was the one that actually brought everyone together. He said it sold for a hundred fifteen thousand. <laughs> what is that? The, that's oh, because I saw in the caption on the RBMX thing the most expensive bike ever. So yeah, yeah. that is. I mean, I feel like it'd be pretty pretty acceptable to say that's the most expensive bicycle that's ever sold yeah i mean that was and that's the original bike that he rode back in 1982 in, in et wow. so they were all Hara, which was which was always strange i thought why didn't ball ride a Hara instead of the kuahara but kuahara um i'm sure that, well they were filming in 81 actually they were filming et in 81 it came out in 82 so i'm sure that's why they were all on kuahara Part of, part of the deal and so going back to that clip that was in our movie my producer Hadil Rada is friends with Steven Spielberg mm -hmm. he went over to Amblin which is in Universal Studios knocked on his door and said Steven may I have a word so she walked into Spielberg's office and said we're making a movie about a kid that was inspired by your movie and he went oh have a seat so she told him <laughs> story and he said what do you need she goes we need clips of et you can look at any movie in 40 years there's never been a clip of et in any movie wow so you got the real deal clip so steven spielberg signed off on it to say you can have these clips wow that is so yeah so, <laughs> so it was a, uh, and it was funny actually when i was back home um in scotland in august Grant Smith and I went um, to the old cinema that used to be there. It's mm -hmm. broken up and everything. And one part of it is like a little cafe, and we had breakfast there. So it was almost 40 years after seeing E.T. I went back to the original cinema um, in Glasgow on Byers Road to to have 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 breakfast with Grant. Dude, that's so incredible! And then to have robert you know hanging out with us right now that's why we do it live because we can have literally people who are that significant to the story hanging out yep. and chatting with us uh kurt schmidt also said what's up johnny oh dude fucking goosebumps everywhere hey kurt love you bro kurt Man. is rad he, i'm excited to have him on here one day too oh my god uh, what he, it's what he yeah for real kurt, you're a legend uh, what I meant to bring up with that bike is I wanted to know what were some of the first tricks that you remembered doing whenever you first started riding. Actually, hold the thought. So did you ever see people riding outside of school and then before you started riding or were you already riding and that was just something they kind of put in the movie? Um, yeah, so the original, well, the first time I actually saw BMX was ET, then right. my dad a BMX track and so you could go down to the BMX track and have a loner a loner bike okay so that was in 82 um, and we would go down there but I was I hate to say it but I was bored I mean that the, the racetracks were probably a foot tall little moguls and everything they were so yeah. I was kind of bored and back then I don't know if it was all racetracks but this racetrack you could only really ride with two people it was such a thin little track so I kind of got bored of just going around the racetrack and I ended up starting to jump off the side and everything because I saw a couple of the other guys do it. Mm -hmm. And then 
it was the 10th of March 1983, so we're coming up for 40 years. Yeah. My parents took me and bought me my first BMX bike. So in the movie, it's sitting in the garage. But in real life, my dad and mum took me to the, the BMX shop, Dale's in Glasgow, which is still running today. Wow. And Amos Burke, it writes for SM. Amos used to work at Dale's. So these are all my childhood friends. <laughs> Dude, it's so crazy to think about that. So, I bought the well, my parents bought the bike and it was a chrome BMX, you know. And next to it was a it was a Diamondback Viper and there was a Kuahara and I went this Piranha XL, which was made in England, and I didn't know much because it was chrome and it had mag wheels. And later on in life, I, I learned that it was a piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> had CW bars on it, which this has, but uh, yeah, um, so the, so the, yeah, so the scene when they're riding the bikes for the first time, and you have to look close, you can look close to the left, and Ryan Nyquist is playing a kid in school. Oh, that's <laughs> funny, I didn't notice that one. Yeah, he's playing Flatland, he's trying Flatland, and it's so funny, so um, yeah, it, it, it was pretty cool, but uh, yeah, that scene was... That scene was made up, but it was based off of me going to that racetrack and seeing the guys for the first time. Right, yeah. I just, I just kind of wondered how that actually played out because I knew that, obviously, for movies, that you have to sometimes you know, embellish on time because you can't make people sit through how much time it would take to show that year-long yep. or seven-years-long process or however long it was. So, yeah, <laughs> totally get that. But back to... Yeah? No, go ahead. And I was going to say, at school, like when I was at 15, probably, I mean, I was getting harassed for still riding a BMX. I was like, why are you riding a kid's bike? Why don't yeah. you grow up? Like at 15 years old. And now you look at BMXers, most decent riders are starting at 14, 15, and then getting great. You'll see some of these amazing kids at six, seven, eight years old, but there's not many really under the 14 that are actually getting noticed at the skate parks and, mm -hmm. and so to be i was never harassed because i was i was an angry kid at school so no one would harass <laughs> me but um it, it was like just everyone questioned you like grow up and then when i was 18 i'm still riding a bmx bike why don't you buy a car why are you on that kid's bike and then 25 and then i've never stopped in 40 years and now people that questioned me way 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 back are like you're a fucking legend, dude. You kept it going. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like 51 years old and still riding a kid's bike. Love it. Hell yeah. That's, uh, Sorry, what were you going to say, Brent? I was just going to go back to the question of like, what were some of the first tricks that you remember oh. learning back then? Um, so on the, the Piranha XL, the first thing I, I, I remember vividly was being able to bunny hop up a curb. Mm. I thought I was like 11. And I'm just like, no way, no one's around to see it. I'm like, oh, like, uh, how, <laughs> like, no one was teaching you how to bunny hop. Like, it, it was 1983, we didn't have videos. And right. I was magazines and stuff. Um, I'm trying to remember one of my friends, I think it was again at that BMX track, I saw them humming. And the first bunny hop I was trying, I was sort of lifting the front wheel and the back wheel just hitting the curb and smashing up and then eventually getting it. But the first tricks I started to do were um, rock walks. Yeah. Right? And I still do that today on the ramp. I love it. Um, and I'm trying to remember yourself. I'm trying to remember the, maybe Pinky Squeaks, I can't remember. It was 
you've, you're standing on the platform, your pedal is high, so your crank is almost 180, mm -hmm. 170. You're leaning on the your foot, left foot on the platform, on the pedal, and then you're scuffing the front wheel and doing a whole 360 turn. Yeah, I'm not sure what the name of that is, but yeah, I can picture I remember. it. Yeah, so th those were the, the little ones, and then front hops, mm. and then back hops, and then I even learned to do back hop candy bars, just back hopping. With oh, now you're speaking my language. <laughs> So uh, that was pretty cool. That, that, that was some good times. Definitely. Yeah, I, I love hearing that. Doing uh, Fufanu candy bars is like one of my favorite tricks to do. And I've never done that. I've done a Fuf can can, but never done a Fuf candy bar. You should do it. It works. It works perfectly. Because the way I go, like my right foot is forward. Oh, yeah. My left foot off, but I air to the right. So I'd be like blind spot almost to take that foot off because I can't imagine I can get my. Well, no. Which way do you yeah. foof? Old way I used to do it with the foot on the pedal and then the leg up. But I used to do like no foot candy bar fly outs. Yep. And that was the right foot over. So maybe, yeah. Okay. Now, okay. You've got me thinking. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm weird like that too. When I do a no footed candy bar, I use my right foot. But when I do a foof candy bar, I use my left foot. So uh, I'm the opposite. No, 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 no. I'm lying. I'm lying. When I do a foof candy bar, I use my right foot. When I do yep. a saran wrap, I use my left foot. When I do no-footed candy bar, right foot. I got to think these all through. But, yeah, uh, you could do it. I know you could. Yeah. All right. All right. I'm going to be better get to the skate park. I tell you, fucking hell, it hurts falling on concrete. Yeah, do it on a wedge first. I know. I need to I need to find uh, – I might actually Steve Caballero keeps inviting me over to his little mini ramp. So I'll have to head over there. It's only 10 minutes down the road. There you go. Uh, what was the first air trick? Can you remember? Um, my first air trick was probably a one-footer. That makes it sense. Weird, because I've got photos of it as well. And my one-footer, don't ask me why, but somehow my one-footer is topside. Mine too. The same thing. My foot is coming off topside, not, not like a normal inverted one-footer. So I was actually, yeah, so that was pretty weird. Um, so that was my first probably air trick, um, and that was about yeah eighty seven I think it was when I had my first little my first handmade half pipe. That's so cool. <laughs> I, I just love hearing this stuff because everybody's uh, first tricks and things that they learned is usually different. Yeah, yeah, um, and I used to get stoked actually just going up the vert ramp. And like doing a foot plant and you, you stick for like a second or two and then you're back in on the ramp and it was like these are just the very early tricks i mean no one was doing tail whips joe johnson right here joe uh -huh. johnson uh joe johnson wasn't doing tail whips in 87 so um you never thought of a tail whip foot plant when you were touching the vert of the vert ramp or anything like that so it was just stopped to to get up there and actually stall it for a second or two yeah oh yeah i mean all of that is just anything new. I mean, my first like real trick aside from, you know, just like hitting my front tire on like a tire of a car and leaning forward. First trick I would say besides that was just a rolling crank flip. Right, right, yeah. But I have it on video. Similar to how you're saying you have these pictures, like I have that on video and I yep. just, I love being able to look back on that. Oh yeah, definitely. I know I love that um, my parents had a video camera, so I sort of, I got footage obviously on this in 86 
Um, but yeah, it wasn't my camera, so I couldn't just take it. And it was massive. It was like mm -hmm. this size. Older camera. Yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, so and then I'm trying to think. And then my friend had a camera um, over in Dundee, Scotland, and that we probably started. We probably started to film ourselves about '89. But my my mum was at the university, so she was a lecturer. So she would bring the university camera home, and we would get to borrow that. So. That was pretty sweet. That's that's pretty unique too, because I mean, when you think about that time period, how many people are like, "Man, I wish I had video from all this," and and it just wasn't easy to make that happen. No, Not exactly. So it was pretty cool because for for me, I would say it was it was the way I could uh, film myself and see how I was doing things wrong because mm. I certainly wasn't the, the smoothest rider. Um, I remember my Al, my friend Alan Smith called me Scott Ruffle, so he said it was an, a mix between Scott Carroll and Andy Ruffle. <laughs> so it was like I don't know, uh, but yeah, I was just all over the place. I was never known as the smoothest rider. So my friends were actually um, commenting when they saw Chase Hawk as a stunt <laughs> double in the movie, and they're like, "Oh yeah, John, you were as smooth as Chase." Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I was. I mix of Nyquist and Hawk. <laughs> yeah, I, that's pretty funny. I was I was watching the movie because I watched all the podcasts first and heard you talking about everything. Then I watched and I was trying to just focus as much as I could on the little details and trying to pick up on the little Easter eggs and things. And it they did a pretty good job of like the way they edited and filmed things of kind of trying to keep it believable and that it's the same person riding the bike as doing the acting yeah i mean nyquist and and shane graham were almost the same build yeah and so that was that was very similar and everything so we'd already started to film and then we have a scene 360 down the stairs ryan's like i can't 360 down the stairs <laughs> right like you do 720s and you bed like come on and you, so he's like, no. Nah. So Chase was already up there. Um, and we we're like, all right, well, how do we do this? And Chase is like, I can't ride Nyquist's bike. I mean, and I'll show you. That's, uh, that's the movie bike. Yeah. Right? So you Chase can't Hawk that, on that thing. <laughs> yeah, you, you can't give Chase that bike. He'd be like, well, what am I going to fucking do with this? So, mm. um, yeah, so had to use Chase's bike. And then, um, What's going on here? Hello. Okay. Ah, oh, get out of here. Um. Anyway, I'll just deny it. No worries. Um. Fucking computer shit. Right. Sorry. Um. Yeah. So what we had to do was get Chase Hawk's bike, and we actually had to get go to an art store and get like that um translucent wrapping paper. Mm -hmm. We wrapped we wrapped Chase's bike up to look like Nyquist's bike, that translucent blue. Yeah, I feel like uh, because I knew that already going into watching it, I feel like there might have been a couple scenes where the the GoPro or action cam, whatever they used on the bike, where you could maybe yeah. maybe see that a little bit. I don't know for sure or not, though. I couldn't. Yeah, you, you could if you look closely at it. Yeah, I noticed. I thought I noticed few, that. A few people commented on it. Oh, look, one minute he's got four pegs. Next minute he's got two. Next minute he's got this. He's got the, the four-piece bars, and then he's got the, the two-piece bar. And I'm like, 
You're missing the point. <laughs> yeah, my producer told me 99% of the people that watch this movie have never seen BMX before. Right. So that, to me, that was my selling point. I'm like, if you're going to pick at that, okay, you missed the whole story. So, um, yeah, Chase Hawk could not ride Nyquist's bike, and Nyquist couldn't ride Chase's. You know what it's like. You mm-hmm. can't ride a person's bike. Yeah, and I, I coming from a video background you know like i literally majored in cinematic arts in college i like pay attention to this kind of stuff and i tried to pick out like when i knew it was chase hawk doing the 360 down the stairs i'm like dude they filmed this and edited it in a way that you have to know and be paying attention to be able to tell because it happens so fast exactly and and i'll tell you the the wall ride yeah. When the heads try and block him, that was my idea, and because Nyquist was like, I can't do that, mm-hmm. and again Chase was there, and he goes, I'll do it. Brand, it was raining that day, <laughs> so wet tires hitting that smooth wall. Sounds great. It was one. Day. We had six cameras on Chase, including all these GoPros and everything. We had this massive industrial heater, like drying a strip for Chase to ride. To keep his tires dry mm-hmm. like so we we're going back and forward drying the concrete as much as we could but when he landed he landed on a wet surface That's and just, he pulled it it's just chase isn't it yeah. he pulled it clean. so that was stressful it's like the ground is almost moist and slippy yep and, and, the, um, and the way that movies are shot i mean they are on a schedule and they are trying to get everything done because they only have so much time in the day daylight is changing throughout and and you plan things out so meticulously that that's like pressure the pressure of rain the pressure of time like all right we only have this allotted amount of time for chase to do this wall ride and he has to do it in the rain yep and and with location, you know, I was in a school. Kids right. were in school. So we were filming some of these scenes whilst between classes so that all the kids were in class and there was no bells ringing. And, and then when we're basically, we had to wait for all the kids to leave the school to then start filming again. But then all the kids wanted photos and everybody's there and all this. I'm like, shit, it's getting dark. Because yep. this, was, this was October um, in NorCal. So it was getting it was getting pretty dark. We filmed a lot of it in Petaluma. Um, so yeah, by by five 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 fifteen, it's dark. Right. Yeah. It's it's just tough. I was also yeah. curious too. Uh, did the BMX rider? How was it chosen that Larry was the like reigning champion that had to be beaten? Yeah. Um, at the beginning, I wanted it to be Dennis Anderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so again you have to improvise when you're filming as you know yep so the the contest is on the script has john goes up against dennis anderson that's what the script has and so anyway they're at napa valley skate park and we're having this contest and everything else and (laughs) my producer comes up to me and she goes um mike perini is like the best rider here (laughs) yeah because Mike asked me, Mike's a showman, and Mike asked me before we're filming, and said, what do you want me to do? And I said, just put on a show. So Mike put on a show. He was flipping, he was whipping, he was corking, like everything was going on. And Dennis was riding, like, as he does, flow and smooth, but he wasn't throwing, it wasn't the X Games. Mm-hmm. So 
Larry, to make the contest look legit, Larry, they deleted a lot of Mike Perrini's That's <laughs> funny. They took Mike out, and then uh, Larry was pretty much second spot. So they put Larry in to go up against John at the end. And I'll tell you, look, the contests that I rode that were they were sort of um, um, parallel referencing to, I actually got second. I didn't win. Oh, so okay. it's an amateur contest. It wasn't a pro contest. So I got second. And uh, my producer was like, well, no one, no one follows the first loser. And I'm like, what I wanted to do, Grant, is speak to the millions of kids that didn't win. Because there's yeah. only one winner. And I wanted to share that part of the story that if you give it your all, like when I got second in a contest, I felt the most amazing. Because I gave it everything and the winner won because he was the best rider. But Hollywood wants... You know, the karate kid, the Rocky Balboa kind of moment. Yeah. I was like, all right, you know, I mean, I've been taught uh, to be coachable. So listen. And if that's what the majority wants, then you've got to go with it. You can't argue and argue and then the script is screwed up. So. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate <laughs> reality of making movies. But I did yeah. think that Larry did a pretty good job with his speaking roles too though didn't he <laughs> he's embarrassed about that oh no, like, he did on, good dude. awesome i mean that's what Brent, that's what i wanted and it was pro dude it was 2016 interbike and i'm going around and asking all the brands like give me a couple of bikes give me some t-shirts like i want all the brands in this movie mm -hmm. and i want all the athletes that i can possibly that i was friends with calling them and saying, do you want to be a part of this? It's 650 a day, and it's all SAG rate, so it's 650 a day, flights, accommodation, food, everything's covered. And so all the guys came up and were a part of it, but um, I wanted all the brands to be a part of it as well. Yeah, I noticed that majorly throughout the movie where it was just like every single spot that there could be some type of brand. I was like, holy crap, you know, from the kid wearing the BSD shirt to the other kid who was riding, having the Haro complete to the Albi stickers <laughs> to all these different company stickers all over the place to the stickers on that girl's laptop when she was uh, sending. The, yeah. yeah, when she sent the clip over. And I just, I noticed that and I was like, dang, this is the kind of thing that probably would cost so much money and sponsorship, but I'm sure it was just John just doing it. Yeah, I reached out to all my friends in the industry, uh, John Popa, Etnies. Um, I mean, we were going to have Vans as the title sponsor of the contest, but there was a bit of uh, uh, miscommunication, I probably could say. Um, sadly, like um, Steve Van Doren, thought this was going to be like a freaking Nazi movie, you know? Um, and there's going to be all this white supremacy and hatred and everything else, and bands didn't want to be sort of associated with that kind of... But it, I was trying to say, it's a, it's a family feel-good movie. It's, it's an, We all have inspirational stories, you know? This is just mine, but I can relate to so many others, and they can relate to me. Um, the last minute, Hova goes, all right, what do you need? So i um, got... Obviously, all the coping stickers with etnies, and he sent a bunch of etnies and clothing and everything for the for the athletes. Uh, BSD, um, demolition, volume, shadow, Sabrosa. Like you see, all the brands come up at the end as well. Yeah, it's so cool. I just talked about Colony, BSD, 
It was just all my. As, hopefully, it shows that yeah, I'm I'm just here to promote my friends and my my sport BMX. Like I didn't want it to be Harrow, um, all Harrow. You know, John was sponsored by Harrow. There was a Harrow team, but um, and can I tell you, Scott Carroll is the the coach. Mm-hmm. So he's the coach in the movie. Well, Scott Carroll was my influence back in the eighties. So Scott rode against Jimmy Beswick, Simon Tabron, Carlo Griggs. You know, Scott was an amazing rider, but sadly in 1997, Scott took his own life. So I'm still friends with Scott's mum and I asked his mum, Mary, if I could have him as if he's still alive today as a character in the movie. And so Ali Afshar plays Scott Carroll and even dyed his hair peroxide blonde because Scott used to do that. And Mary was so thankful because she feels like her son is still alive. That's see, that's where I get chills. <laughs> I get teary-eyed when I think about him because I certainly wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Scott. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the our early influences are so important. Uh, real quick here, Grant Smith's in the chat speaking of BSD, and he said, "What contest was that?" Talking about, I think the one where you got second. Barrow and Furnace. So it's a small, but he was there. So it was Barrow and Furnace. There you go. So amateur, amateur contest. So, but Bestwick was there as well. He was riding pro and Andy Burke was in pro. Um, yeah. So it was pretty cool. There was mini ramp. There was the, the spine ramp, but the spine ramp had an actual vert, probably nine foot. Maybe Grant will correct me. He filmed all this shit. So, um, but I managed to do a Bubica that vert section as well, which was pretty cool. I think, I don't know if anybody else abubicated that vert part and pulled it. I didn't put my foot down, whereas 90% of the time I'm always putting my foot down. This is Capone. <laughs> this is Capone. Thank you. Capone. You look like a good <laughs> Come on, down. Get down. He loves to talk. He said no. <laughs> down. <laughs> uh... so, I think you did a fantastic job as far as BMX's representation in the movie goes. I yep. I think it was great as far as all the brands showing Haro, showing close-ups of the bike and seeing all that stuff. The only uh the only thing like how people say they noticed the two pegs, four pegs, two piece bars, whatever. The only thing I noticed was the pedals changed from the beginning to the end, but like that's normal in a period of time changing out pedals in Yeah. That was all I could pick out. Yeah, the original had the lineage pedal, and then I think Nike was put on the demolition pedal. Mm-hmm. Ones, yeah. Um, so that was yeah. But again, as as we said, like ninety nine percent of the people have never seen BMX before. And I wanted to put this in the big screen. We we did have a plan for the big screen, yeah. but um, uh, I wanted to introduce BMX to so many people that had never seen it before. So. How, sadly, yeah. Sadly, it didn't get to go into theaters. Oh, okay. Sadly, COVID hit, and we had 650 cinemas booked in in America. Um, don't know if you well, you would know, but when you're doing a movie, you have to buy the cinemas. You have to mm. buy the seat, and then when someone buys a seat, that's when you get your credits back. Yeah. So we booked out 650 cinemas across America. So you can imagine that was like six million dollars. And then the making of the movie and everything else, COVID hit, 
our company folded, so there's no more Forest Films. It's gone. And I was going to get 2% royalties, and I got $1 for that movie. Wow. And I still get the check, $1, uncast. Uh, as you should. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so, yeah. that's a bummer. Can people still watch it on Amazon? Like, is it... Um, it's on Apple TV, but there's like five countries can see this because it's like distribution of a bike. Mm. You need the country to actually have the distribution. Canada still hasn't got that. Wow. So people literally have to use a VPN if they want to watch this and they're outside of the five countries. Exactly. So, look, you know, I just want people to watch it. And I actually had a, um, a Zoom call yesterday with this powerful man that uh, he works in the, the prisons. He works in over 100 prisons around America. And he wants to show this movie in every single prison. Oh, that's amazing. That's what I want. I want, it's free, right? It's free. So I just want prisons, juvie halls. I'd love schools to be able to show this. Yeah. Like I think it's so educational that, that you can be anything you want to be and, and be around good people and you can leave the past in the past. We all go through shit. So leave it there. Yeah, man. Do you feel ever like the things that have happened to you in your life were almost meant to be to get you to the point where you are today and have Haro in the movie and all these inspirational yeah. things you've done? Honestly, 100%. And some people, you know, they've read my book and I talk about being sexually molested at five years old. I talk about my dad throwing me in the fire at three years old. Talk about eating out of trash cans as a kid and everything else. Like, um, and people are like, oh, I'm so sorry you went through that. And I'm like, I'm not sorry. I'm glad I went through it because I survived it and I'm here today. A lot of people that are abused as children, sadly, 40 to 50, the suicide rate is so high. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, yeah, I'm proud of myself. I'm proud of myself and um, of what I've achieved. And I'm glad I'm still here. And I've got amazing friends all over the world. And it's all from BMX. So um, I'm not John Craig. That was my biological name, not John McCord. As okay. it is. And so we changed my biological name to keep all the um, safety aspects of the story. Didn't want getting sued from a family member or anything else so they changed the last names there uh, but kept the Bulgin's name um, my mum and dad's name and kept Mariana and Eldridge my parents names so yeah uh, probably going off on a tangent there I think but anyway that's okay you answered the question I mean just feeling like some of the, the things you went through in life were meant to be to get you to where you are yeah and that's why I, as I, yeah that's why I said I'm glad I went through it the highs and lows. Um, you know, I was even talking to my, my brother-in-law, my ex-wife's brother yesterday. We were talking about doing a project together. It's like, it's my ex-wife's brother. And it shows that I haven't burnt bridges with people, mm. you know. Um, you can even Google my name and there's nothing negative that would actually come up online. Apart from there's one, there's one, um, the Daily Express, which is a, a UK newspaper, um, I think it's the Daily Express, and this, the title was um, uh, Scottish BMX star claims he was sexually assaulted by Princess Margaret. 
I was pinched. My ass was pinched by the princess when I was serving her vegetables and potatoes at a ball. I was a waiter and I was serving vegetables and she pinched my bum. <laughs> and it blew it out of proportion that I said she sexually assaulted me. I'm like, come on. So that's the only negative thing online. Everything else is pretty positive because I'm... I've become a positive man, for sure. I used to be an angry little bastard, and Grant will tell you as well, I used to throw my bike and get pissed. And, <laughs> and yeah, he's like, he would always call me like a stress, like, you know, <laughs> a few stress kings, which was BSD video, so yeah, it was pretty sweet. That's <laughs> funny. Maybe we can get Grant in here one day and he can tell a, a John story. Oh, Jesus. He thought, oh, do I hear one quickly? Oh, yeah. All right, so the first factory contest was 1989 in Dundee. And, and I mean, so Dundee's on the east coast of Scotland, north of Edinburgh. This old warehouse, so obviously it's abandoned. It's just cold. And so my friend Alan Smith said, okay, Richie, you're staying with me. Grant Smith, you're staying with John, but he's gay. <laughs> so Grant was 15 at the time. I mean, Grant's like, fuck that, I'm not staying there, I'm scared. <laughs> Kids were, were 15, 16, 17 years old. And so he stayed in the, the warehouse, freezing cold, found like a sleeping bag and just slept under the ramp. And then the next night he's like, I'm just going to risk it. I'm going to John's house. <laughs> and oh, that's how we became friends. <laughs> and I was there with Grant when he met his wife, Rachel, who's also his partner in BSD. We were partying in Aberdeen in 1991. And uh, yeah, Rachel and her friends were actually like 14 or 15. They were underage. And we got invited to this party, we went to the house, the police got called. Grant and I jumped out, like it was almost two stories high. We jumped out the window into the main street and ran across the road and watched everybody else coming out with the cops. And it was pretty funny. We got some good stories. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's so good, yeah. Maybe one day I'll get them in here, get you two in here together. How fun would that oh, be? <laughs> I mean, the good thing is with Grant as well, even though he hasn't left Scotland like to live in another country, he's traveled all over the world, but his accent is the same. You know, a lot of Scots, they, you can't really understand them because they're talking real quick. And they're <laughs> like so, uh, Robin Williams' golf skit. When he does, I. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> it fucking hard. <laughs> yeah. That is one of the best comedy bits of all time. Oh, exactly. I mean, and you know, even talking about Robin Williams, we all thought he was the happiest man in the world. True. But he was so miserable inside. And so, you know, yeah, we should all reach out to our friends and just be like, are you, are you good? And since I got left from Harrow, I mean. Yeah, Peter Gustin, Dave Volker, Bob as well. Like so many people have reached out and said, Are you okay? And I actually said, I'm the best mental state in my mind I've ever been. Like, I'm actually in a really good spot right now because I feel like a massive lift has been taken off me. And this is 50 years old. This is the next chapter of my life. So I'm excited. Yeah, man, absolutely. That's good that you come out of it positively and like you've found a way to continue doing what you were loving the most about Haro with other yeah. people and be able to include Haro at the same time like what could you can't beat that you cut out all the other stuff and just leave what you wanted you have to take the politics out of it it wasn't personal if 
It was my, and I know a lot of people in the bike industry have lost their jobs um, quite recently. Yeah. And it's like, well, where do we not? I mean, even Harold wanted like more of a salesman. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, I was phoning shops and stuff at the end before I left. Just researching, how can I help you? Well, I would phone Flip. I would phone, you know, the, the dealers all over the country. I'm like, how can I better serve you? Like, I know it's tough times. The shops are flooded with stock. So instead of just going here, take more, take more. And some of the big brands, not just in BMX, but some of the big brands would just flood the shops up. And you're like, how can I pay this bill? So, and... and I saw a post recently that a retailer posted, we are now competing with the wholesalers. Jeez. We're now competing with the wholesalers because wholesalers have had to discount product. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was talking to Moeller the other, that was a few weeks ago, um, down at Gary Young's contest. And Chris is like, well, who's paying for all these extra storage containers and units and everything else that you need to pay for? Like, you need the stock gone. So I get why I was let go, and I'm never going to slander or badmouth Harrow because it's, I still feel Harrow's my brand. I mean, I treated it like it was my own company. Um, I watched budgets. I mean, I was like the most frugal man in that business, I think. Like, um, I just wouldn't spend unless I could make it back tenfold. So mm -hmm. if I was going to mold, I'd be like, okay, well, this mold is going to cost. 10 grand but i guarantee this is going to add at least a hundred thousand dollars in sales to open this mold so and um, that's how i thought of it and that's how i treated it and that's what, how i'll treat the brands i'll be working with as well They're like okay look the bending tooling is going to cost three thousand dollars but we can make a thousand frames yep so it's worth doing um so i'll always treat it like it's my own business and no matter where i am i've always been like that yeah probably from my childhood not having anything um, to then respecting money. I mean, I remember I got pocket money and it was two pounds a week and a Star Wars figure was one pound 50. So I would buy the Star Wars figure, save that 50 pence and then buy another Star Wars figure the second week, but the third week I could buy two. Oh yeah. At three pounds. <laughs> right. So I learned early on to budget as a kid which I don't know where I learned that from honestly it was probably just never had anything so I had to protect it even that 50 pence yeah I mean it that makes sense logically that's where it would come from yeah yeah <laughs> I wanted to ask too what uh what's your BMX life looks like today riding whatever it might be yeah I mean uh, I'm, I live in Oceanside North County California and my local skate park is MLK so I go down there every so often. Um, I mean, I'm nervous now because I don't have medical insurance. It, my medical insurance lapsed after leaving Harrow. So um, I've never had to worry about going to ride before. And now I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah. So I start getting some money coming in uh, to my, my business. Then I'll take out my medical. And I spoke to my dentist uh, just before, um, before New Year, and he went, I mean, I've got like 12 teeth replaced. I've got implants, veneers, crowns, all this stuff. And he goes, look, you just have to keep your dental hygiene going. So take out a plan with us that gives you two cleans, gives you x-rays. You don't have to take out thousands of dollars a year on dental because 
you've not got many teeth left, they're all fixed. So, uh, so getting that kind of advice was great. And so I'm really looking for the future. But, um, uh, I tr you know, a lot of the guys meet at Hamels uh, down in San Diego. So that was a, a flatland spot back mm -hmm. in the 80s. Dave Norrie went down there. And, um, you know, there's a lot of legends from, yeah, Balker and all that, Augustine. They would all ride there in like 84, 85, 86, R.L. Osborne. And people still go down there on Sundays and just meet up. So it's a little flatland sesh. I don't really flatland, but I can do a decade, that's about it. So, uh, but it's good to just be out and hang with the guys. So I'll go down there um, every few Sundays. And, but I need to get back on it. I need to, to ride more. I pumped my tires up the other day, so the bike is ready to roll. There you go. <laughs> what, uh, what tricks are you doing if you're riding a mini ramp today? I mean, I always start off with a rock lock drop in. That was Scott Carroll's trick. So, and that was one of the first sort of lip trick kind of that I learned. Um, I can still do decade drop ins and stuff like that. Um, but on the concrete, I prefer doing that on wood, not on concrete. Mm -hmm. uh, I want, I need to do another 540 Canadian nose pick. I used to do them all the time, but right on the coping. So 180 in, almost like a saddle did in the sub rails. But I've never done it on the subrail, I'd always do it on the coping. Um, but I, I want to do that on a on a wooden ramp. I don't want to hit the concrete. But my body's hurting just thinking about it. <laughs> I, I know where there's a perfect ramp you could do it on at Rays. Oh, at Rays, yeah. Yeah, and I know somebody who would love to learn that trick with you doing it. Damn. Yeah, yeah. man. Come ride Rays. I learned that trick and yeah, ninety four was the first time I pulled it. Wow, that's a crazy trick doing that on the on the coping or the edge. On the coping it's like it's one eighty into the Canadian and you're almost pivoting like you're sort of forty five degrees and then you're two seventy out of it. Yeah. So quick and it's so precise. Um I haven't I think the last one I did was probably five years ago at uh yeah, I think it was about five years ago at Woodward and um, Tehachapi. So I haven't done it. But Woodward's coping is like that, that mm -hmm. far. Might, might have to. Um, actually, Steve Caballero phoned me just before Christmas. He wants to go up to Woodward and learn a backflip on a bike. Oh. So I said, Coco, Coco is the room that's going to teach him. So I was like, all right, I'll come up. Because I still haven't got a full flip before. I've done fakie backflips and landed in my head. I've never pulled a backflip. Yeah, me so, either. That trick. I know it's like it's it's a circus trick. I totally get it, but it's my mind. I can do backflips off walls. I can do front flips off stairs, but the backflip on the bike, just getting past that blind spot, I'm like, I let go of the bike the whole time. And and it was funny when I went to Pennsylvania in 2021. They had the reunion and Nyquist was there teaching me how to backflip and. I'm like, fuck, and I keep getting the blind spot and just letting the bike go and keep mm -hmm. letting go. This little 11-year-old girl did a backflip in front of me. <laughs> well, there you go. I'm like, God. Well, they say, like my buddy who learned them when we were young said it's the easiest hard trick that there is. Everyone tells me it's easier than a 360. Yeah, it makes sense. It's just scary. Yeah, it is. It's just that blind spot. I mean... I was even, no, I don't want to say it on here. Uh, don't do it. 
What's that? I said, don't do it. I know. I was like, I was going to say something. I'm like, no, I'm not going to say it. Because we're going to try it on another apparatus first to get that blind spot and then try it on a bike. Oh, you already I'm not done say said that it. No. You already said it. Now we know. On my roller skates. There you go. Uh, so we've talked a little bit about the industry side of things and how kind of things are in a weird bad spot right now what do you think will be the thing that lifts bmx out of that if you had to guess i mean like honestly and i've, I've said it before is like, like support the brands support like please buy the product don't expect it for free i mean our favorite times in bmx for me anyway and i believe a lot of people was the early 90s there was no sponsorship mm. there you had to buy your bike you had to buy your parts i mean in scotland we had to buy like we bought a gyro cable we would buy like five at a time from america um standard brought out the longer axles to fit the super pros mm -hmm. so buy a bulk of them at the same time you'd have to hold your stash up and your friends would break a gyro cable and they'd be like, oh, can I get one? I'm like, dude, this is my last one. Mine could fray and snap. It's like, you need that backup, but you'd help your friends. So um, honestly, uh, all I ask is like for the community, for the BMX community to support the industry. Um, I mean, it's great. A lot of guys hold on to their bikes from 10, 15, 20 years and they're stoked that they still have that old bike. But Go get a second one. Like, get, get, I'm just saying, just uh, the industry, as I said, I was hoping the movie would come out to the cinema and then it would open to a global audience and more people would be buying BMX bikes. That was the whole reason for, for, for doing this. Plus, obviously, the foster and adoption side of things, inspiring kids that you're the chosen one. You're not abandoned. You're not rejected. You're chosen. And that's more important. So it's like here with BMX, support it. Like, um, stop asking the brands for free shit because the brands need your help. They've been helping so many riders for all the years. This is the time to show the brands that we're here to support you. That's my my two cents for sure. Hopefully someone gets it. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. And my uh, addition to the part of the people who hold on to their bikes and ride them for 10, 15 years is that is not safe. Go get a set of forks, handlebars, oh. and a stem right now. <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I would tell the guys all the time, like Dennis Anderson. I mean, I would tell the guys, you have to switch your fork out every 90 days. It's Dennis. And then, you, yeah, it's great to give your old parts away, but I don't want a kid snapping the head tube off because you've hairline fractured it. And I'm not just saying Dennis, I'm saying any pro rider. It's great to give your old parts away, but if a kid gets hurt on it, metal fatigues, metal needs to bend and breathe. So if you've already beaten the shit out of it, switch it out and get a new one. It's like a helmet. If you hit your head, a motorbike helmet or, you know, any helmet, really, if you fracture that, you need to get a new helmet. Yep. The same as your bike, like, um, even if you don't need it, still keep your your mid-school bike, but maybe get something new as well. They're, the geometry is so much better, they're lighter, the bars are actually better for your back. Yeah, you're going to not have Those, back pain. Oh my god, 7.25, 7.5 handlebars. Can you like, imagine? 
23 inch wide so you could just do the wee bar spins and shit like um yeah i don't think bmx will ever go back there i think that was a big mistake i mean you look at chris doyle back then i mean his back he's on the bike, <laughs> bike. his legs are here and his back's there like yep. you want to have a 10 inch bar i rate 8.5 but if you're six three you want a 10 inch or a nine and a half inch bar and a top load step i mean i still see some guys riding front loads and i rode front load for many years um but getting that top load and then getting the, the taller stack height and getting a higher bar, it's so much better for your posture and better for your lower back. Oh, yeah. And I've said this a million times on here, but I have a set of bars that were my first bars on a complete bike. I cut them to 21 and a half. <laughs> I didn't know why. Uh, did, you, did you have brakes on there? Oh, the yeah. Oh, yeah. So they were on the bend? I just had one, but yeah, it was on the bend. Yep. Wow. I don't know why. Your, your grips were like 135 mil. Now yeah. they're like 155, 165. Yeah, it was just not not good for riding bikes. Great for bar uh, spins, but yeah, not not good for pretty much anything else. No. Wow. And you you kept that bar? I still have them. Yeah, I still I I'm like you. I keep everything. Like I I will never get rid of a frame that I rode just because I want to one day be 51 and hanging them on my wall like i remember when i rode this in 2007 yep i mean it's funny like when i was clearing out all my stuff at harold like um i found my old original knee savers which we based off the new lineage knee saver mm -hmm. and it's all welded both so basically the the lower crossbar for this stem both sides are all fully re-welded um the basically the um the curvature well you would always bend your bar so you would bend it back up and then what we used to do i'm not sure if you did i know a lot of guys did is you would get your threaded axles and then like put them onto a stair bend it slightly and then smash the axle down so you could actually stop your bar from bending oh my god like in the tubing we used to put and i've got a pair of bars that are in my garage i found them when i was unloading all my stuff from harrow it's my original knee savers from 88 and you can feel the crimping on the side from when i've smashed the axles in to straighten it and hold it tight so they don't bend oh my see this is why i feel like people like you need to have a youtube channel just so you can be like all right check out this this i'm going to talk about just this for this video and then anybody can see it anytime and you can look back on it 20 years from now too that's... i mean that's like like honestly a bicycle isn't built like seriously no matter what you buy today a bicycle isn't built to put through what we do right so every bike is going to break if you're fucking hard on it like i was and I remember when I broke my Harrow Sport, I broke it in three weeks. I cracked it around the seat tube. And it's like, I looked at the warranty back then, and obviously I bought it from the States, from I think Trend, which is now Empire. Mm. Um, so I bought it, and it was 90 day warranty, but it took like three months to get to the house. So the warranty was already gone. Yeah. And now it's lifetime warranty and stuff. I'm like, nothing is lifetime. Even Apple is doing all these updates because Apple doesn't break. Yeah. So they do all these updates so they can pretty much crash your product so you buy a new phone or a new computer. But the bike industry, it's like, 
why are we why do we shouldn't be giving her all these warranties i'm sorry guys but warranties aren't increasing the the industry or helping the industry because the makers in taiwan will not warranty most of those frames if it's over a year old they won't warranty it so the brand has to replace that yeah it comes out and we're losing out i hadn't really thought about it that way yeah i mean it's like it's not helping anyone and so i'm glad i still have all my cracked frames and i'm glad i supported the industry as i did i never i think i got one my 89 bash guard bike um i was grinding the bash guard and the plate ripped out now when you look at that they were tiny little four mil bolts mm. you're talking your body weight you're talking the bike and you're sliding on concrete of course it's going to rip out of the frame right so in bolts they had for bottle cages if you look at your mount bike or road bike those little hidden cage mounts that's what was on the bash guard so i snapped the bash guard off or ripped it out of the frame and i contacted shiners which was the distributor in the, in the uk and they goes oh that guard's there for stone chips <laughs> i'm like have you seen the latest ad in bmx plus or whatever it's like he's grinding the concrete you can see the concrete spitting off and so they gave me a black frame for a hundred dollars, a hundred pounds. It was pretty much their cost price. So they said, look, we can't warrant it, but we'll give you another frame at our cost. So that's how I ended up with two 89 masters, the chrome one and the black one, mm -hmm. because the black one was a semi warranty, but it wasn't really, it was a warranty replacement. Yeah. Crash and replacement. I th I th yeah. I think a lot of people, okay, you want a warranty. Well, maybe we should all be doing crash replacements. Look, the bike isn't designed for that but what i'm willing to do is give you another frame at my cost price or whatever yeah like at least no one's losing out that's a fair it's a fair argument i would say uh, i don't know if i'm gonna get hate mail or whatever but... no i think i think people can understand where you're coming from with that yeah uh along those same lines though i was curious too what you think younger riders need to hear and see or know about in BMX? Yeah, I mean, uh, one thing I was talking to, actually, this guy about in the prisons, and we had a long Zoom yesterday. Um, I was saying one thing that I'm proud of is the young kids I helped early days, like Logan Martin, went on to win gold in the Olympics, and I was his first bike sponsor with Pilgrim. And it, it, he... You know, a lot of these kids that grow up aren't really educated in school, so be around people that can educate you. Logan himself invested his money, so he bought a house, he has his beautiful life and everything else. The up-and-coming kids, I wish we could teach them more about investing in your future. I didn't care about my future either, and most 16-year-olds don't, but to get in and buy property at such an early age in your 20s is a massive thing so if you're becoming the next pro in bmx invest your money yeah i just so people know about it too i did a podcast with uh dorito jason purse who's in the financial world now about exactly that setting yourself up for the future after bmx yeah. totally i mean you can still live the life every single day but 
I mean, you know, through my divorce, I lost the house, I lost my daughter, I lost all this stuff. And I had to start, when I came to America in 2012, it was me starting all over again. But again, I don't regret it. You know, you lose it, you can remake it. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've done here. It took me like eight years selling my bike collection, but I now actually own property in California. And it's it's so hard to buy here in California. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing I would say. And honestly, support your friends. Like, um, you know, that's one thing I loved about BMX. It's like you could be on the deck and your, your friend gives you a fist pump as you're rolling in because he wants you to be the best rider you can be on the day. Yep. And it's the same as these kids. It's like, you know, you're growing up. Um, don't be selfish. Don't be selfish with your time either. Um, take a stand for another human being. Like, that's so important, I believe, um, to being a decent human being in life. And it is, it's, it is all about paying it forward. I mean, I've helped so many people over the years, and now when I need help, which I've refused because I really don't need help, but <laughs> people have reached out and said, what do you need? Can I help you? My neighbor even, dude, let me give you some money. Let me help you with your mortgage and all that stuff. And I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. Like friends in the industry reaching out and it's, it's just because I've been there for them and it comes around full circle. It was like the whole thing about watching E.T. and Bob Harrow and then I'm the brand manager of Harrow 30 years after I saw the movie and everything comes full circle. So um, yeah, don't definitely don't uh, knock people down to get to the top because then you're going to be surrounded by those kind of people that are going to knock you down to get to the top. Inspire people, lift them up. A great leader will lift you up. He won't put you down. Couldn't say it better. What uh, <laughs> for the for the young people and the kids who are getting into BMX? What do you think is like the the must see? Like, what do you have to watch if you're just getting into BMX? Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm looking at a picture of Matt Hoffman in there. Um, I mean, I was going to say head first. That was fucking brilliant. Agroman was amazing. Head first. Um, if I may say, um, so I'm going to try and answer this question in the most polite way, but, um, today's rider is missing, I feel the style of like a Chris Doyle, you know, like BMX and I'm not dissing anyone in any way, but it's almost irrelatable. It's so far quad tail whips and all this crazy shit going on and then you throw the bars you're two inches off landing there's so much stuff going on that kids can't relate to it and I think again it's just me but I think that could turn a lot of kids off that's why they'll get on a scooter because they can easily ride it yeah. and you know um, so it's all about being relatable so a new kid coming in like uh, it's hard to say I'm not trying to say you know slow the progression down in any way not at all i'm just saying um i feel we need to be more relatable in bmx so that kids can actually see it i remember let me tell you just to point out something like um mike gray amazing amazing writer canadian writer writes for Harrow. yeah and um, he's doing all these videos edits everything on instagram and when he came to Harrow, probably 2016 2017 i said Mike, do you think you could bunny hop this 48 pound Dave Mira Pro model? And he bunny hopped it. 
and I said, all right, could you bunny hop Barst in it? And he's like, fuck, my back. <laughs> anyway, I filmed it. He posted it. It was one of it, and he did the slow-mo with the bar. So it was a bunny hop bar, and that was it. And he said it was one of his most liked views on Instagram at that time. That's funny. Because it was relatable. Kids could see you bunny hop, you throw the bars, you catch it, you land. And that struck a chord with me that we need to be relatable. So these new kids coming in, um, I would love to see these kids doing, like a Larry Edgar as well, the way he writes, Chris Fox. Um, yeah, with Dennis and everything. It's, I like that kind of writing. It's still keeping the core of, of BMX. Um, there's nothing more beautiful than the clip turned in. Uh, you know, it's just, yeah, yeah, I think that's some one of the most amazing tricks. Or a completed inverted flatty. Like, there's just the the simplicity, and it is an art form. That's the way I look at it. That you could ride effortlessly, riding like that. And I, I would personally say I would notice you a lot more than things I can't even comprehend unless I slow the video down. Yeah, I I feel like a lot of what you're getting at here is kind of just finding who you are through your riding and being yourself rather than trying to jump into the race of doing as much as you can possibly do unless that is like who you are you know yeah i mean and it reminded me just then is like when i got when i arrived at harrow i said to the owners be harrow stop trying to be every other brand mm -hmm. be harrow so as you as a human being be you Stop trying to be a clone of someone else. And you can be inspired by someone else's skill or flow or whatever, but be you. And that that's how you're definitely going to get a lot more noticeable. I, I mean, look at me. <laughs> yeah. I, I still got the same haircut I had in 2006. So there's that. Yeah. And I just, I hit hard on everything I do about just being yourself in every aspect of it. Totally. I mean, Brent, you know, I'm coming back to the Vegas when I met you because I remember the haircut and you were on your own. Yeah. You were on. I'm just wondering, so how, because it was an industry thing, like were you working in the industry then or what was it? So I, at, I was not was I, I ride for alienation still do yeah. I did back then and i took a photo at ray's my girlfriend took a photo of me at ray's doing this uh ride up the ramp grab a rafter swing out swing back grab she took the picture of it and uh they used that picture on a display at Innerbike. and yeah. and when i found that out we were both instantly like well looks like we're going to Innerbike." So, like, nobody oh, yeah. flew me there. Nobody took me there. All that what happened was I asked the, the local bike shop around here that I ride for, uh, Brimstone Bicycles, I asked them if they could just get me, like, in. Because yeah. shops can get people in. You know, you don't have to pay that $500 rate yeah. of fee if you're an outside person. So they got me, like, in, and then... I just I literally just went to go and see myself on the display and then meet whoever I could, you know, meet and talk to and walked around and came across you. Yeah. No, it's it's crazy because it does it all starts flowing back now. So yeah, it's pretty mad. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I don't know. It's 
one of those uh-huh. things like I nobody was gonna f- put take me there, but I felt like I needed to be there, so I just made it happen. Yeah, and and what was I've never really talked about this side of things, but we booked the trip to Vegas and Interbike, and I mean it's an expensive trip, you know, you gotta buy plane tickets and everything, and. I think the next week I got laid off from the job that I had. Oh, fuck. So this was like, you know, a good job. I got, I was getting paid pretty good money and getting laid off. And I'm like, oh my God, I have this insanely expensive trip I'm about to go on. And I just got basically fired. And yeah, yeah I just looked at it like, well, like obviously it's happening for a reason. And like going to Interbike in Vegas is an opportunity that I'm just going to make the most out of. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it sucks about the job, but again, it's another chapter in your life, and then it motivates you to do take the next step. Yeah, I mean, it, it. I'm not bummed about it at all because it got me to where I'm at, and I vowed after that I will never have another, like, full-time day job thing where I have to go in every single day, 8 to 5 or whatever it is ever again yeah. and i haven't nice it's just yeah that's, what I'm, that's where i'm at right now i'm glad to just be me be my own boss choose my hours and uh live the life i love instead of working the grind and yeah it's just so repetitive i'm glad that every day can be completely different yeah man uh a thing that really has stuck with me that somebody said to me is that the guy who owns the trails that i dig out out here he said a comment we were talking about something years ago and he said make your vocation your vacation yeah that sticks with me every single day when i do what i do because that i mean who doesn't want that as a bmx rider so i mean i do i see i haven't worked since 1994. Yeah. i've been in the industry i got into the bike industry in 94 so 29 years it doesn't feel like I've worked because you got to do what you love. And people say, oh, well, we're not all that lucky. Well, you're not given luck. You've got to go out and create it. Exactly. So what do you want? And I wanted to work in the industry. I never thought I always, always wanted to work for Harold, but I never thought I'd have been the global brand manager for 10 years. So, um, yeah, you got to create it and believe it and put it out there in the universe because everything is possible. And I always say as well, stop talking yourself out of shit. Talk yourself into shit. Mm-hmm. Talk yourself into it. Like, if you're dropping in and you're hitting a spine for the first time, like, oh, I'm going to case. You're going to case. Yep. You, that's when you crash. It's when you right. do that. And it's funny. I, I always parallel reference bike tricks to motivational speaking. And it's like, you know, if you're doing that with your riding, you're going to crash. If you're doing that in life, you're going to crash in life. So it's like, yeah, and I see it on Facebook so much, like people just repetitive, I'm depressed, I'm this, I'm that. Well, get out of where you are and move to where you want to be. Be around the most five, the five most successful, inspirational, powerful people that you know. Yep. Surround yourself with those people and they do rub off on you. If you want to be around, you know, people that are just depressed all the time and pulling, you can't be around that because you can't help them. One of them have to be around five positive. Yeah. You basically rub off and 
and really hopefully heal this planet because there's just so much negativity out there. Yeah, man, you can't uh, you can't move forward in a car unless you shift gears. If you stay in right? this, you can't move faster without shifting gears. You can't you can't expect to anything to change unless you make a change at the same time. Like, yeah, when I got fired, I could have just went out and found another full time job and you know what's the word settled and and just did whatever people do in life and and but i made that decision that that's not what's going to happen that's when i really dedicated myself to doing what i do on here and same with you and haro like you could have just you know given up or whatever and gone and used your references and skills to get some other kind of job but no you started a consulting company that's going to allow you to continue doing your favorite part of the job you had yeah exactly and again i'll be driven by the consumers yep. what they want let me create what you want you know and hopefully they see it's not just looking in the catalog and choosing these parts every part needs to be created and you know john de bruin at hutch i mean his hutch aerospeed cranks um are so hard to make profile was making them but um if i'm going to do a complete bike well i if take if out of the equation when we make the complete bike, we need to make the cranks in Taiwan. It's so expensive to be shipping from America, then claiming your duties to bring them back in because this part was American made. And mm. it's like, let's keep it all in Taiwan. So, um, but doing stuff like that, getting that aerospeed, that's why I'm off to Wisconsin on the 24th um, to, to go and visit with John for a couple of days and set up all the hutch stuff. Because I need to feel it, I need to touch it, I need to to create something. I never rode a hutch. Friends rode hutches, um, Woody Itzen rode hutches, Dominguez rode hutches, but I never did. So I need to do my research to really get into the nitty gritty of it to create products that people are like, wow, I want to ride that. I mean, you're essentially describing the fact that you're an artist with this. <laughs> I know it's like when I look at these bikes I mean that's why my house is full of bikes and skateboards yeah and it's all art and my girlfriend's like this looks like a museum <laughs> <laughs> like well I mean the, the middle it's a townhome so it's three stories but the first to second floors are the, the skateboards and then the second to third floors are all my bikes but that's a 20 foot wall so mm -hmm. it's huge but not the stairs but it's the timeline of my own personal bikes. And then the middle floor has got no BMX, but it has a beautiful photo Sandy Carson took of Scotland. And he gave me that. Um, Brad, Brad McDonald gave me this one of Vic. Yeah. Uh, I've got all these housewarming gifts from amazing people. I've got, yeah, Hoffman over there. There's a picture over there with Volker, Perenni, um, Augustine, like, but it's art. It's not just putting photographs of your friends on your wall. Yeah. There's actually pieces of art. I mean, this is art. Like, so many people say, what? Like, because I think this is five by three, five foot by three foot. Mm -hmm. And people are like, where did you get that? And it's like, well, I've got a friend, <laughs> Brad McDonald. <laughs> That's awesome. So it's cool to, to see BMX as an art, to see the bikes as art. And I appreciate, appreciate everyone that's, in the industry and I appreciate everyone supporting me to keep my little dreams uh, going along and 
hopefully they'll continue for not just five years, but a lot longer than that. Yeah, and that's funny that we're talking about art and that got brought up because one of the last things I have on my list here is to talk about art and drawing because that was brought up in those podcasts. You mentioned like, oh, yeah, I used to draw a lot and I should get back into it. Then watching the movie, it's like art is a huge part of the movie and drawing in there. And personally for me, art was like a giant thing in school as a way to not have to do a foreign language or band or choir then found out i was good at it so like it's what put me into the path of videos and college and everything that i did so i'm just curious if there's any updates in the art world for you i know it's crazy so um the last piece of art i did was pink floyd the wall and and that was eight foot by four foot and it was in my bedroom and it was just right across the wall. And I, everyone that came to visit, I'd get them all to hand to sign the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was the set, the, the, if you've seen Pink Floyd, the wall, the album cover, you open it up and it's a big double page spread. So that was the last piece I did. Um, so since the movie came out and I, was it last year? It might have been last year or the year before, but I went over to Caballero's house because on a Tuesday night, he has art night yeah. at his house. And um, Big Island, Mike Castillo came over as well. So I met up with Big Island and there was a few pro skaters there and everything. And it was a good atmosphere and everyone's just doing their art. Um, I'm trying to remember this guy, Paul. Paul does this. You may know him, he was a pro skater. Um, but he does this art that you can't tell. It's all by pencil and you can't tell if it's a photograph or if it's actually a drawing. The way he does this art is just unbelievable. I wish I could remember Paul's name. I could look on Instagram, but his art. So I'm just like, damn, I'm around all these amazing artists. I'm like, I'm just going to have a drink right now. And, yeah. and I remember even um, uh, Big Island was was doing a custom pair of van shoes for one of his friends, painting them all and everything. So it was cool. Um, I'd love to get back into art because for me, like living in Scotland, when I wasn't riding my bike, I was drawing, I was doing art and it was my expression. Yeah. Uh, letting it out there, you know, I had a desk and everything with an ink pen and all that shit in my bedroom. So that was my, my, my outlay uh, back then. So, um, yeah, it's still on the agenda. Uh, I need to get back into it for sure. Haven't done it since I was sixteen, so it's been a few years. Well, what I would say is I've kind of come into the realization that like the bikes that you're creating are are there. Yeah, it might not be drawing per se, but yeah, I'm sure you're drawing in the process of making these bikes. Yeah, I doodle, and then I have to get engineering drawings and everything done. Um, but I know exactly what I want and what measurements and angles and bottom bracket height. Like, I know it to a T. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, and then recreating. I remember the first project I worked on at Harrow was the Vans Master. Mm. So it was 2013. And it says on the down tube, Harrow Freestyler. Now, the word freestyler back in the day was written by Bob Harrell. So he wrote Freestyler and it was a ballpoint pen. Well, the paper 
would let the ink sort of seep into it and there was all these imperfections. Yeah. So the original art files were imperfections, were on it. Then it was digitalized. And so when I was actually, uh, Michael DeWitt, he was working at Vans at the time and I think he's maybe went back. Michael came down to Harrow and I sat with him and I said, look, here's an original sticker and this is what we need to do for this Vans master because he was doing the artwork for the Vans master and he was like wow you're a freak and I went you know the little dip here on the top of the T like it's bleeding here and then there's a bubble here we went through every single letter to make sure it was right obviously we scanned we scanned the decal but that's what we had to do and I'm sure Moller did the same to recreate the pitchfork decal and everything else and Moloterno told me he did he basically scanned and redid the lengthy, the shorty, the STA, all those graphics, because you had to recreate it, because they were all on floppy disks back then. Right. How do you remake it? You can't remake the original, so you have to get it as close as possible. So the freak in me wanted to put every single little imperfection in there. I didn't want it to look digitalized. I wanted it to look like the original. I love that because that is that's being an artist at right. its core, you know. It's your expression of what's in your head that you're trying to get out into the world and and you will not let it be anything else but what you're trying to get out there. Yeah, and most people don't look that close to the decal to understand that kind of um detail. Mhm. Now that you do and you have it, you're like, oh, well, that freestyle graphic was done before John got there, and it was after Bob Harrell, and this, with the bleeding, is definitely John. That's that's his influence. He's put that back onto Harrell. That's <laughs> awesome. That's so I, cool. I even had to tell Bob, uh, when we were doing a ride-out last year, um, we did a um, basically 40th anniversary ride-out for Bob and then Harrell Freestyler. And I was like, no, dude, you've got the digital version of Freestyler. We need to get this one. You got the wrong one. <laughs> you've got the wrong one. <laughs> what like, you... oh, shit, really? <laughs> Do you realize who you are? You can't yeah. be on this. <laughs> it's, it, again, it's, it's um, yeah, I get, I get a wee bit emotional as well, knowing that, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a consultant for Bob as well. Like, I'm... I'm start to help him out on future projects and stuff like that and we're going to work on something else in the future um so it's amazing to to work with a lot of the people that inspired you and then they turn around and say you inspire me and it's like fuck dude i mean what have i done but yeah i've put a lot of smiles on people's faces so i'm happy about that that's a best thing ever man that is the best thing about bmx is when you have your heroes and the people who've inspired you and then you not only get to become friends with them but then you have things like that happen oh yeah i mean like i remember someone said never meet your heroes that's a lie and i'm like dude my friends are my fucking heroes like and it's like even when you work in hollywood and stuff if you're meeting some of these big actors treat them like this yep. they're human beings the acting gig is a job so don't be like oh my god you're such and such can i get a selfie and all this is like treat them like a normal human being like a normal conversation and they'll have time for you 
And okay, so, so do you want to hear something really embarrassing? Uh, I mean, how could I say no? <laughs> so when we're about to film the movie, Chris Bridges, ludicrous, read the script. His manager read it and said, "I want in this movie." Chris yeah. asked him the movie. My producer phoned me up and goes, "We got ludicrous," and I'm like, "Who's that?" <laughs> oh, I've got one like this for you too. <laughs> <laughs> like what? And then I had to Google him. Oh, that's who it is. Dude, that is amazing. I have, I actually have a couple of these. So, uh, mine aren't on the scale of ludicrous, but the first one is I was riding an indoor skate park with my buddy Sponge, just half hour from our house. So we didn't expect, you know, anybody to be there, but we're yeah. sitting on the deck where you can see the door to enter the skate park. And all of a sudden, I just remember him like kind of freaking out and being like, is that Chris Doyle? <laughs> and and my response is the same as yours. Who? <laughs> oh no! I didn't even know who Chris Doyle was, man. And it's, oh. but but it's because I grew up making videos instead of watching videos. So I just right? I had no knowledge, and that's the that's sometimes the beauty of what I get to do here, where I get to talk to someone like you or Moeller, and like I don't know everything I should know, so I get to learn it from yep. the people directly. So that's. It's just awesome. That's uh, great. Yeah, it was a somewhat embarrassing one. I had another one that's similar to that at Swamp Fest the one year. Uh, yep. Brock Rayford was there riding the trails, and and he walks by and he's like, "Oh, what's up, Brent?" And I'm like, "Oh no, no, it gets worse." I was like, "Oh, hey man, it's great to meet you in person finally." And he turns around and looks at me and goes, Brent, we've ridden together. Because <laughs> he came to raise with the Odyssey team one time. And my dumbass completely forgot. And was like, yeah, Brock Rayford, it's great to meet you, even though we've ridden together. Shit. He, and I mean, the, that, that is bad. The worst part of it was that he's like, I know you're internet famous and everything. And I'm just like, oh, I'm going to go home now. That's <laughs> <laughs> just... Oh, that's brilliant. So I make you feel better and about your ludicrous. Meeting each other as equals, you know, and, and everyone, you know, like, you're doing amazing, and a lot of people look up to you, so keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Because you're an inspiration yourself. I try to always live through the, like, mantra of never knowing who's watching you just yes I've, I've felt like this for a long time where you just you never know who's paying attention to what you're doing so you always want to give like who you are and your best foot forward because you just don't know who's gonna be influenced by what you're doing at any given moment oh exactly i mean like when you told me we were going to be live today i'm like oh <laughs> I have to be careful with the language. I'm trying to be PG as much oh, as possible. You're okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's just as I said. Like, I mean, I've got nothing to hide. And um, I mean, I do also say I'm an open book because I have a book written, so it's got everything in it. But yeah, that's that's bad. That the book is bad. The movie's good. The book is R rated, fucking eighteen plus. So I talk about everything. I talk about the drug abuse talk about but then again also talk about the the opioids that I was addicted to and 
talk about the suicidal thoughts and attempts that I've had over the years. And um, but you got to be honest. You got to be. One thing I've learned. I did this program called Landmark, and it's about being the most powerful human being you can be. And I used to think vulnerability was a weakness until I did this program, and I realized it's a strength. So now I'm completely vulnerable. Like you can throw anything at me, and I'm like, well, that's how you think. That's how you feel. It's got nothing to do with me. Yep. And it's not that I don't care, but you got to let it go. You, my girlfriend, she's a social media influencer, and I mean, can I say it? Like daily, she gets a hundred dick pics sent to her. Daily. I mean, she's got over a quarter of a million followers and stuff, and it's her full-time job. And I can't let that affect me because that's her job. She was doing it before we met. And so when she's online, I'm like, well, you're acting, you yeah. know, you're, you're this. And then when we're together, we're together. So you gotta, yeah, you gotta take a step back. It's someone who's feeling this certain way. You can't control them. Yeah. And if they, everyone has an opinion, everyone has an asshole. So huh. weird, <laughs> the same thing almost. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so I hit up Craig before doing this and just asked if he had any after doing the podcast that he's done with you if he had any anything he might want to ask about and and he had a couple things that we had already talked about today but there's a couple of interesting ones here that i'm curious about one is uh if you've ever thought about doing any kind of like speaking tour to tell your story live yeah um i actually uh was going through all this coming up to COVID and stuff. Um, so I got um, full FBI clearance and I had all my interviews and I can actually now work in the probation centers all nice. over the country. Um, and that's why I was having this this conversation with Kit yesterday, Kit Cummings. This guy has an amazing story as well. And we we're talking about he's building this documentary that he's gonna do. I mean, this guy was an absolute like biker dude, psycho guy, became a priest. Oh, wow. And then became an alcoholic and got out of the priesthood and lost his wife and everything else. And then he's remarried. And now he realized his being here on this planet is to go not to speak in the church, but to actually speak into prisons, to speak to those. I mean, he said himself, he felt that I'm not religious or anything. I believe there's a higher power for sure. I just don't give it a name. He believed that his, the Lord or whatever came down and told him, you're speaking to the wrong people. They don't need your help. These guys need your help. The homeless, the, the depressed, the you know, people in prison, like so many people that are now just completely lost. That's why you're here. And so then he turned his whole life around, stopped drinking, I think he said 16 years now, he's been sober, and he's working on all that. And so he's asked me if I'd be interested in coming into that as well, which would be amazing. Um, I don't want to be so repetitive, saying the same story every time. Yeah. And actually, this is actually good because it's freestyling, isn't it? We're just having a conversation. Yep. That's what I would like to do um moving forward and i've got a few good contacts and it's crazy um the last person i spoke to about ted talks was kevin robinson 
and he had some good contacts at TED Talks. He wanted, he actually suggested I get on there, and sadly he passed over five years ago now. Um, but I've got another friend, Dr. John DeGarmo. Um, he's fostered 57 kids and adopted nine, I think. Wow. And he was on TED Talks as well. And uh, so I would love to do a TED Talks. I would love to speak in schools, colleges. Um, I've spoken at Edinburgh University to 200 um, social work graduates. And it was crazy hearing that in the social work system, the social work system fails because one kid will be with this social worker, but the next week you'll be a different social worker, the next week a different one. I had the same social worker for like three years or four years, and they said that's unheard of. So when you can't trust your mum, you can't trust your dad, you can't trust your biological family because they're not there for you, but this social worker is there and he's a man of his word. It's such a young child. that leaves an impression with you and so finding out that social workers don't stay with children that's a feel is a major problem and i would love to be a part of that as well of bringing that together that it's not fair in the kids and some social workers have to go to eight houses in one day how are you meant to give that family the time or know that that child has been abused because his mum and dad are sitting right there and this kid who's fostered is getting abused, but they're taking money from the system. I'm getting pretty deep here, but that's something I would like to work on as well, part of Lineage Consulting Group. Yeah. So open up for everything. And Craig, I'm definitely going to do it. I'm going to do it more. I just don't want to bore myself telling the same story. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see how it could end up that way and you kind of feel like you get into the groove of the same thing over and over, whereas what you described maybe gives you a more you know intimate personal connection to be able to kind of like you said freestyle how you're yeah. you're giving the message and who you're giving it to and what comes out of it catered to the people and what they need rather than all right i'm here to do my speech all right i did my speech now we're gone now we're going to the next one yeah i mean you have to be authentic yeah. like if i get repeating myself and repeating myself it's going to come across as I'm reading a script yep. and people are going to walk out. They're going to be like, well, this guy's not boring. This yeah. guy's really not here in the room. And what I like to do when I have done talks and schools and colleges, and I look around the room and pretty much research who I'm talking to before I speak, because it has to be a PG version. Then there could be the R rated version. Like if I'm talking in prison, I'm talking about slashing my wrists when I was seven years old. Um, I'm talking about, yeah, being molested. I'm talking about my dad throwing me in the fire. Like, there's all this other shit. I'm talking about eating fried rice next to a dead dog covered in maggots at the back of a Chinese shop. Like, I can talk about that because it's relatable to these people, but I can't talk about that in a school with 10-year-old kids because right. it's unrelatable. And hard for a 10-year-old kid to grasp something like that. Yeah, I mean, I've had a, a lot of... A lot of people reach out to me and couldn't comprehend that a five, six, seven-year-old child was living on his own looking after himself because he was too scared to go home and get beaten up by his dad. And people, family members or whatever, they'll look at their children and be like, I couldn't imagine my little seven-year-old son 
having to defend himself and then having to defend his mum to protect his dad. Like, there's just, there's a lot that, I just think it was the area we were living in, it's the 70s, and there wasn't computers. I mean, we, I think we got a television probably when I was like five or six years old, but we didn't have television for the first five years of my life. So yeah. um, there was nothing else to do but either watch my dad be an alcoholic and beat the family up all the time or go out in the streets and just mingle with the street kids. And that's what we used to do. Yeah. Yeah. It all makes so, sense. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, the other thing from Craig was, is do you have any ambitions or thoughts about like a future film project or anything in the works? Yeah. So I've got two short films coming out. Um, one's called Her Call and it was um, a producer over in Chicago that I met that she wanted to be a, be a part of this film. So I'm this multi-millionaire gambler tycoon who seriously, the last time I played poker was actually with Ryan Gutler and Dillard and James Foster in Greenville. That was the last time I played poker. So this movie, I'm playing poker and I'm meant to be the guy. Like on the table is $250,000. This one guy um, who's actually, his name is George Kosteros and he's the kid in the school. When I do the 360 and he goes, hey, you got to hang out with us more often. Oh yeah. Right? So um, he's, he's in this film, uh, it's, he pretty much owes me $50,000 and we are the mafia in Chicago and we're going to kill him. So, and his sister is the producer of the movie as well. She stars in it. So that's going to be pretty interesting. She's won so many awards and like, uh, I keep calling it Cannes, but Cannes, Cannes Film Festival. She just got another award the other day. So this was a short film. I did it for free. Um, but again, it's investing in yourself and investing in your friends because her budget was 20 grand to make this 20 minute movie that she then wants to sell because it, it looks so professional. Yeah. And the other yeah. one, the other one we did is called, um, um, breaking iron. It's about an iron man. And this one is, I also brought Shane Graham in who played me in the movie, the right. Mm -hmm. So. I'm fucking his wife in this movie. <laughs> oh my god! So he played. He so played we're, you. Yeah, we're on a triathlon and he knocks me out. So he, yes. So that was pretty fun as well. So hopefully both those movies get picked up. But again, um, they're short. I mean, twenty grand for one person just to come up with on these small projects is um, is a lot to put out. So there there are two that um, are ready and waiting. Um, I got into business with Andy Ruffle and he has his own production company and everything. So we have five scripts Dang. on our computer right now. Um, we've also spoken to Robin Robinson and possibly doing uh, a movie about Kevin's life. Nice. Um, and it'll be open, vulnerable and honest. So I've said that, that we need to be relatable and powerful with our story we want to inspire others because like we said we're robin williams you know we're struggling yeah. at the top so we have to basically look at um you know how others live at the top i mean i speak 
again, I keep saying parallel reference, but I keep, in my book, I talk about the drug addiction I was on with the pharmaceutical drugs, but I was trying to be a voice for Dave Mira with the opioids he was taking. Mm. And, and it's, it's hard. When, when you get to the top, you're the best of the best. Dave was the best of the best, but he couldn't get that high anymore when he was hitting triathlons. He couldn't get that high anymore with his family. Like, you have to live in the moment to get that high. And he couldn't. So, sadly, it's easy when you're in pain to take an extra pill and an extra pill and then, and it becomes an addiction. And I believe pharmaceutical drugs are killing more people than... <laughs> I think it's like yeah, the but... second largest cause of death or something like that. So I say it's above suicide, definitely. Uh, was it... And people don't talk about it because you can't take on these pharmaceutical companies. But I think it's time we do. I mean, look at this week already. How many heart attacks have we seen? Yeah, it's... Healthy people. It's uh, prescription drugs are third after heart disease and cancer in the U.S. and Europe. Yep. Yep. So, I mean, it's a massive issue. And so I'll tell you, I haven't taken antidepressants since I thought of running my car off the road. I was at Robbie Madison's house in Sydney. He wasn't here, he was in San Diego. It was New Year's Eve, um, 1st of January, 2012. He had just jumped San Diego Bay. Mm. And I know the family and everything, so I was up near Sydney in Nowra. So we were at his house watching him here in California jumping San Diego Bay. The 1st of January, I'm driving back from Sydney down to Melbourne. And I just went, fuck it, I've lost everything. Uh, Pilgrim, I was struggling with Pilgrim. I was in the 165 grand debt. I had lost my wife, lost my daughters, went to lose my house. I had nothing left. 1st of January, 2012, I closed my eyes and accelerated down the freeway. And my daughter in my head said, wake up, daddy. And I woke up and I looked down, I was doing 180 kilometers an hour, like 130 mile an hour with my eyes closed. And so that day I stopped taking antidepressants because that was screwing with my mind. And then when Dave passed in 2016, on the 4th of February, I remember that day so vividly, even Kevin Robinson phoned me that day because he needed some parts for his bike that Matt Hoffman couldn't give him to do the biggest backflip and he needed some lineage parts. Again, it's so crazy because I'm talking about people that are no longer here, you know? Um, uh, yeah, so it's, I don't know where I was going with all that. I just, as I said, I go off on tangents and stuff, but- You're okay. They, Stopped taking, I stopped taking pharmaceutical drugs um, on February 4th, 2016. And I'm in pain right now, as we all are in BMX. I like what Mike Escamilla has just been doing uh, with this whole stem cell and everything. So we're going to catch up and talk more about that. Yep. But I'm not, I'm not getting back on the pills. Um, and even now, I've got some growth going on in my stomach. So I'm taking all these... Um, uh, oh God, why is my brain fried right now? <laughs> um, I'm on all this medication right now for 12, for, yeah, a month, for 30 days. And so obviously I can't have alcohol or nothing. So I've been, for, since the 1st of January, no alcohol and I'll, I'll stay on that. I'm just a stubborn little prick. Like, <laughs> if I to do something, I'll do it. And I'm like, well, 
because I did, I became pretty much an alcoholic. I was a binge drinker over COVID and letting that go because I thought alcoholism was someone that just drank all the time. But alcoholism is also a binge drinker. And during COVID, some nights when I didn't have to go any harrow, I would drink myself to blackout. And I would wake up in the morning and I was covered in bruises. And it's because I fell to the kitchen bench and smashed my side or whatever. I'm like, where the, did that come from? And so again, you have to realize these problems. And a lot of people, as I said, 48 people I know and some were very close friends have committed suicide since March 16th, 2020. Um, is it the drugs? Is it the alcohol? It's isolation. You know, when you're depressed, when you have all these demons in your head, the worst place to be is isolation. You need to be on your bike. I mean, they close skate parks, they put sand and everything into them. They, they close beaches and gymnasiums. It's like a lot of these people, a lot of these adrenaline junkie people need to be busy and need to be out burning their adrenaline. And that's, that's I, I totally got to that point and thankfully, um, I'm here in 2023. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I'm glad. I'm glad for it. I mean, it's one of those things. It's a very unfortunate part of the world that we live in and reality as a human being. And I think through things like your movie and the book and just being here as a positive example for people, it's inspiring. I, I know that there's thousands and thousands of people out there who've been inspired. I mean... I another thing I would love to do with Lineage Consulting Group is create a platform or something that if it's not just even BMX riders, if it's actors, singers, like when you've reached that top, there's no one coaching you how to come back to normality. Yeah. I would love to start something like that, like a coaching clinic that you're perfect the way you are. Oh, but I was making a hundred million dollars, now I'm broke. Well, you made a hundred million, you can make it again. Yeah. I, I've seen friends go bankrupt and lose twenties of millions, tens of millions. Um, but they've come back and they've come back stronger. It's like, you've been there, you've done it, you can do it again. So if you can't get the high with your riding, like right now, I'm getting a high just talking to you. Hell so yeah. It's being in the moment. Yeah. That's so that's what I'd love to help. That's another something close to my heart um, and it, it would start with BMX of course I don't want to see another friend take his life and honestly guys if anybody's listening I'm here anytime yep yeah always available via Instagram I'm always there too I literally people I think people sometimes get a, a wrong perception of like people who are like in your position or my position and doing what we do this it's like there's no time for anything else that exists but in reality like i i have i check my stuff every day if somebody messages me i try to get back to them as soon as humanly yes. possible and i i pride myself on the fact that there's some people who are like holy crap i did not expect a message at all let alone this fast yeah <laughs> i mean that's the thing like all we have is time yeah. And I did a post a couple of weeks ago. I said, what's what's the most precious thing in your life? Not mentioning family. And I believe it's time. All we have is time. You can't buy time. Yeah. And when I turned 50 and I knew these 
changes were happening at Harrow, I, I put in to take six weeks unpaid leave. And I went all over Europe and Egypt and back to the UK, drove up to Scotland and just, I wanted to say, I'm alive. And even though I wasn't paid or anything, I was just like, look, I, I just, you can't buy time. And when you have these moments with people in your life, and that's why I say I don't want to see another friend commit suicide. I've, I've seen it enough. And we've got a long life ahead of us. And I'm here for you. So, yeah, it's life is good. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so, John, I mean, we've talked a lot about lineage consulting and all these things, but what's next? Um, so the biggest thing for me is definitely um, reconnecting with my daughter. I haven't seen her. It'll be 12 years in two weeks. So she's 16 in two weeks, and I haven't seen her for 12 years. Um, I spoke to my brother-in-law the other night, and we had a good talk. And I'm hoping she'll come around and want to see me again. Um, I've been paying my child support until I became unemployed. Um, so I just, yeah, that's the biggest thing for me in my life is I'd love to have my daughter in my life. She's, she's my meaning of life. And it was the biggest biggest achievement I've ever made is being part of the creation of my daughter. So that's the future for me is my number one priority and to keep me going on a daily daily, which I love to keep busy because then I don't get depressed not having her in my life is yeah, I'll keep doing the BMX. I'll hopefully I'll talk to more brands. I mean, everyone hits me up about GT and like, dude, you should do the proper bend with the, the cool freestyle tour. Someone said that in the chat. <laughs> oh, it's, <laughs> it's crazy. And I'm like, well, I'm here. I want, I, I really, I don't, I, I, yeah, you've only got enough time. I would like to take on no more than five brands mm -hmm. to do lineage with. And because I still want to enjoy it. I don't want to feel like it's a job. I want to feel like I'm actually having fun with this and traveling to Taiwan, you know, um, seeing all these factories and these makers because um, seeing it from your mind to a little paper napkin to actually holding the creation in your hand, as you said, it is art. And This is my example. <laughs> I have the drawings and then there's this. Yes. Nice. Keep going. Exactly. Sorry. Like, wow. And, and that's why I collected every lineage bike of every zero one serial number because it's my own timeline with Harrow. Yeah. It was whilst I was there, so I'll finish it off with the Bob Harrow bike. The 2023s that come out in July, well, um, I actually said to Kevin Connors, and I was like, the number ones are coming in my name, but please give them to, like, you know, Albies, Flatland Fuel, mm. Planet, like people that have bought these bikes on back order, Share the number ones and let a consumer grab this, this the number one serial number because people do love it, knowing that it's limited edition. Yeah. Share the love. I just want my last one, the Bob Harrow Freestyler, and then, yeah, I'd love to continue um, the lineage series with Harrow and with other brands. Hopefully, um, the more movies to come. I definitely want to do a ride too. Um, spoken about it a few times. Uh, sadly, the the ride is eighty percent non-fiction, twenty percent fictional. Yeah, I would say ride two would probably be 
80% fictional, 20% non-fiction. Because mm. if I talk about my early 20s, I was a complete slut. Um, I was a dirty man and I don't want to go down that avenue because it's not inspiring anyone. So I'd rather do more of a, a fictional story afterwards and carry it on. So that'd be pretty cool. That'd be good. And then, um, yeah, uh, more talks. Um, I'm, I'm the brand, I'm, I'm the ambassador for Adoption United Kingdom. And I'd like to do more with Adoption and Foster around America. Um, I just, you know, I mean, I know I'm here for a purpose and I'm here to hopefully take a stand for anyone and everyone and inspire them that, you know, all we have is now and today is the beginning of your life. Um, I used to think live each day as if it's your last. Now I think live each day as if it's your first. So leave the past in the past. You can create your life from now and anything is possible. And I think with that mindset and and reading like Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, that is now how I live. This is this is all we have. All we have is now. We don't know what's going to happen. So, but you can create your future and you can definitely prepare for it. And young athletes invest. You know, you can definitely do that, but still enjoy the moment and be here and be present. And that's that's the message I want to spread all over the world that, you know, you can be anything you want. Talk yourself into it. Yeah, that, that's a beautiful perspective versus living every day like it's your last and just being reckless and doing anything or flip it, live every day like it's your first and build something. Yeah. Well, that's my mentality now. <laughs> I love it. Well, we've been going for two hours and 45 minutes, so I I don't want to take too much of your time here. It, it's been amazing, and I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to talk to you. No, Brent, it's been awesome. Thanks for having me on, and uh, yeah, poor Capone wants to go out and do a pee, so <laughs> yeah. take him out. And, no, I appreciate the time. Um, I love that uh, you're doing this, and you're sharing the love of BMX and all across brands, because... You know, we we got to build each other up. We got to support each other. The next three years is going to be tough on everyone. So, um, yeah, support those brands and brands supporting each other. Like we can actually get through this. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So it's good times ahead. I agree, and I would love. That's right. Uh, Robert said, "Tell John it was a great show. He did great, and so did you." Uh, Everybody's showing love. Say it. Kurt Schmidt, love you, John. Jason Smith, I love what you did with Haro. Bill Bright, you guys are awesome. Morbid Thrasher, great show. Was fun. So much good, positive. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. As I said, thanks for the support. Um, could never have been at Haro for 10 years if it wasn't for you guys supporting me and my vision and uh, keeping lineage alive. So hopefully, you know, moving forward, um, let's do... Yeah, the most amazing bikes that we all love from the 80s. And um, keep riding, dude. Keep riding. Absolutely. When you're, when you're in the moment, there, there's no issues. There's no problems. Like when you get on that bike, you can't think about your childhood or paying the mortgage on Monday or anything else. Being in the moment is what you get riding the BMX, riding the bike. Yep. I love it. 
Yeah. So where can people find you online to keep up with everything you got going on? So I've got, um, yeah, just John Bolgens, B-U-U-L-T-J-E-N-S. So that's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, JohnBolgensConsulting.com will be up soon, hopefully. Um, Isaac from Big Bike BMX is, is at uh, GoDaddy, so he's going to help me with that a little bit. I also got um, JohnBolgens.com. So I'll probably just start putting all my own personal archives onto this site and instead of everyone asking me questions, I can put everything on there. So I've got a few projects uh, for the next year coming up and then we'll continue till I'm 55, 60. And I look at DMC and Mall Eternal, I mean, fuck, they're almost hitting 60. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But they're killing it. They're still killing it. And so I look at that like, well, I've still got plenty of years to go. That and uh, there's a guy from Russia named Mendo who's got to be 70 by now. He started when he was 62, and he's still doing it. He's like, he was 68 in the video that he posted probably two years ago, so he's got to be 70 at this point. Riding bikes. Uh, so we got a great future ahead of us. Oh, we do, definitely. Pay it forward, and BMX doesn't owe me anything. I owe BMX everything. Absolutely. All right. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in, and uh, 